and welcome to episode 293 of the Crate and Crowbar. It's, I forgot the date, 21st of August. <laughs> we prepared this time. Um, I know. We I rehearsed it. it. I looked at it, but then it went from my memory because I didn't write it down because it was so easily rememberable. Uh, I'm John Francis. With me here today are Alex Wiltshire. Hello. And special guest, Mike Cook. Hello. <laughs> Sorry, I set Hi. the pitch too high for you. It's okay, we can stay up here. <laughs> Hello, Mike. <laughs> hey, it's great to be here. Thanks so much. Lovely to see you. Yeah. I've been locked in the attic since the last guest episode and you finally <laughs> let me out. It's great. Oh, well, I was going to ask you what you've been up to, but I guess <laughs> you've covered that now. <laughs> <laughs> is this why we had to come to your house, Tom? <laughs> because this is where you keep. It's too weak to travel. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, I'm I'm back in the country because uh, I'm attending a, a conference in London, the uh, IEEE Conference on Games, or COG, um, and it's uh, it's the Cog. The Cog. That's what we call it. It used to be called CIG, and they wanted to keep the acronym as close as possible when they renamed themselves. Um, <laughs> so now it's just Conference on Games, just nice and like broad. It could so be anything. Oh, it's not about Gears of War. No. Well, well, the, you know, if you wanted it to be, could be, there could be some papers in the mix. I haven't seen all of the talks yet. Um, <laughs> there is a gr- great weight, I expect, of academic work on Gears of War. I mean, you'd be surprised. You know, like, uh, it's it's funny what, what, what games become popular. Because, like, the, the games that become popular have nothing to do with, like, the topics or the problems that become popular. So... Some years you just go in, like there's a Blood Bowl competition this year being run about, <laughs> like writing AI to play Blood Bowl. Oh, man. And you don't really hear much about Blood Bowl these days, but yeah. it's actually like a great game to build AI for. So I'm like, I'm super excited for that. You know, so. This is one, you talked about Blood Bowl before, Alex, in terms of it's an interesting game design thing where yeah. when you have a bunch of actions you want to do, you want to do the least risky first. Because, yeah. Yeah, if, because if anything fails, your turn ends, right? Yeah. 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 You're, yeah. If you fail a dice roll, your turn is over. So that is interesting from an AI perspective. Absolutely. Like lots of the games that AI play are what we call perfect information games, where there is no ambiguity about what's going to happen next and there's no hidden information. But Blood Bowl is, you know, not like that at all. Uh, and there's a lot of risk. Uh, and great big possibility, possibility space, <laughs> mate. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but the, the conference, I'm midway through the conference. I've actually left the conference temporarily to come and be with you today. <laughs> He's um, on a conference holiday. <laughs> a conference joint. I'm back tomorrow, but uh, there's already been like some, some really fun stuff and people from industry coming to talk, lots of new researchers with new passions. Um, I was having a chat with a, a PhD student last night who wants to blend games together. So he told me that he was reading this paper and at the end of the paper, uh, it posed this question, what what would uh, Super Mario plus Contra minus Zelda be? Right? <laughs> right. Well, you got it minus Zelda. The Zelda wasn't there. <laughs> That's um, negative Zelda. Yeah. <laughs> the impression Zelda would leave after having been there. <laughs> and he was he said he was transfixed by this problem, and he wants to build a system that could answer these questions. Wow! Um, and I, I chatted with him for a long time about that, and that's fascinating because one of the things we were talking about was you know. Um, if you play, uh, there's lots of games where, you know, we might all play the game, but we like it for different reasons, right? Like Crusader Kings 2 or any Paradox game, I'm just there for the story. I'm so bad at the systems. <laughs> so it would be interesting to do, like, what is, uh, you know, Europa Universalis minus Civilization? Yeah. Uh, you know, what's left if you do those two things? Like, maybe that's a game that's, like, more for me. Um, so, yeah, we, we chatted for a long time. and you know. So is the research question with that about trying to set up rules for what defines like a game type it's is that what is that what you would study if you if you did that thesis so one of the problems is if if all three of us answered that question of like what is super mario plus contra just that on its own we would all come up with three different games you know so especially me because i don't know what contra is right (laughs) 
but uh, that... Super Mario but with a Vampire Weekend soundtrack <laughs> Did, is that not what you hear when you play <laughs> he hasn't played any of the new ones oh, okay that explains yeah, yeah. it yeah um, so he wanted to attack it from a machine learning perspective, um, which means that you can kind of ask the computer just like, you you tell me what you think Mario is, and you tell me what you think Contra is in this weird, like, uh, abstract space. And then that allows you to, you know, do math on the abstract okay. space without worrying about what the games are. But the problem is, like, if you do that with artists, so this is actually what we're talking about, if you do this with, like, what is Picasso meets... Uh, you know, Renoir or something, um, you ultimately get an image you can look at. Like, it might not be a good image, but you can look at the image. You can hang it on the wall. Uh, Mario plus Contra, it's not necessarily going to be playable. There's, like, lots of things in that space that are not games, um, and that's, like, a a massive challenge. Like, games have so much, so many requirements that other media don't. Yeah. The thing I can, I think I vaguely understand that I can almost relate this to (laughs) is uh, you can do, you can generate, if you take a body of text that's, like, all of Alex's writing. Right. Uh, oh, Christ, sorry. <laughs> yeah. You can make a word cloud that is not the most used words in Alex's writing, but the most Alex words. Like, the, the words right. that are more common in your text than they are in some other average body of text, which would have to be, you know, a huge volume of yeah. just randomly sampled writing or something. And so you can take the word, those would be the most Alex words. And if you wanted to make an anti-Alex text, <laughs> as I do every week, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> you could de-emphasize those words and pick sentences that avoid the words that Alex likes to use. So I guess, like, I mean, yeah. I, I can extrapolate from that to, like, Picasso and imagine, like, a Picasso brushstroke might be one of his distinguishing features and you might uh, extrapolate that as, like, okay, well, the difference between Picasso and most artists, which is an absurd phrase, <laughs> uh, is this particular kind of brushstroke and therefore to be anti-Picasso, you must exactly avoid that and the brushstrokes must be, like, more narrow or something. Yeah. Right. But then, like, extrapolating that to, like, fucking an entire game, like, you're exactly. the universe well, what you were saying about very hard of, to imagine. You know, this is, all, this is all interpretation, but of course there is that with a picture, but you don't, the picture can be a picture without someone looking at it, whereas a game isn't a game until there's a per- person playing it. And then, Absolutely. then you get this extra layer of kind of interpretation. Yeah. And you, sorry. But one of the difficult things about machine learning is that it will come up with its own idea, like its own abstract representation for these things. And that's why it's so powerful is that we don't have to tell it how to represent Mario in its space, in its neural network or whatever. But at the same time, it also means that we can't like, we can't always control it in the way we want to, or, or it doesn't. Mm. You know, the, the things that it identifies as a Picasso-esque thing might be something completely, like it might be the amount of pressure he applied to the canvas, like something <laughs> that you wouldn't even notice. Yeah. Um, um, but that maybe is still, it turns out, you know, good at the end of the day. Well, so I'd love to, like, so Contra to answer, the Contra is a very fast-paced run-and-gunner, like, so it's a platformer, but all about shooting, and it's very, very hard, and, like, it's instant kills. Um, and if... That process, I'd be interested personally if at the end of that process you realise that there's something special with Contras, the speed at which bullets go. Mm. Like there's something about that game which chose a particular speed, which has meant that it, among all the many other run and gunners of its era, kind of it stuck around, you know, plus, you know, other things I expect. But yeah, I'd, I'd love to see database stuff on that because it's the start like it might get a fingernail under the the feel stuff that that, that you can talk about but not necessarily understand absolutely yeah. it's uh the subject of like how what people see as the essence of a game is mm. something that's of practical value when you're making a game because you're often pitching it and or showing it at, at, at conventions and stuff and it's super interesting 
to hear how someone else summarizes the game. Especially if you can get someone to just play your game and then have them tell someone else about it, try and describe it to them. The features they pick up on are sometimes very surprising, not what you, you thought was interesting about your yeah. game or, or unique about your game. And they're coming to it from a perspective of, you know, whatever they're, you know, I said earlier, like comparing Picasso to most artists uh, and comparing game to most games. That body of most games, of course, is different for everybody. So even if we had the exact same processing engines that would make the exact same kind of comparisons and, and care about the same kinds of things, the body of work we're comparing it to is different on a person-to-person basis. And so you as a developer are bad at judging that as well because you've got a weird set of uh, a body of work that you're familiar with and you're comparing it to that. And so you need to hear how other people see your work and, and you know what strikes, what stands out to them about it. You probably sell it. You probably sell it to big publishers, and then they get like some numbers. Yeah, about I mean, how, you got... how good their game is. <laughs> it replaced Metacritic with an even more indescribably stupid number. <laughs> it's funny because this, this student, whose name is uh, Anurag Sakha, I believe, and working at Northeastern University, um, and he was actually saying he was worried that it wouldn't have any impact on the games industry. But actually, you know, something like that probably would have uh, massive impact. Yeah, have but it's impact. all publishers want is like a number right, saying right. how much. Oh, this is how much we should back this game. I would definitely worry more about how incredibly hard it will be to do oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> than about its viability. That's like a, yeah, usefulness. exactly. That's a luxury problem, a luxury worry <laughs> for the future. Yeah, for most of us. Um, but no, it's, it's been a really great conference as it always is. It's, it's great to see like new ideas emerging, new trends, thinking about like what will we be worrying about in five years' time. Um, it's always great to, to see all these people come together and share what they've been doing. Um, Obviously, no other big gathering of people about games has been happening this week. So it's been really, it was really easy to get industry people to turn up, obviously, because they had nothing else to do. Um, so uh, no, it's been, it's been good fun. It reminds me a bit of... Um, uh, so you are perhaps best known for Angelina, which is uh, a game-making AI, an AI that can sort of generate game ideas and design games. But I know that you're interested in more than just that, and in particular... Uh, it seems often when I talk to you about Angelina, you're interested in the questions that come up in making that almost as mm. much as you are in actually having a you know uh, a thing where you can just press a button and get a game. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And one of the things that uh, you've talked about before is like, how do you get Angelina to judge a game? And how does that compare to how a human judges a game? And if Angelina makes a game that isn't good by human standards, like what is it that the human is bringing to that and understanding that, which is it seems quite similar to the idea of like getting an AI to sort of figure out what is unique about a game and, and be able to plus and minus that to things. It's also really hard to quantify. Like uh, I've been thinking a lot lately, when Angelina comes up with a game which is almost good but not quite, or good in a way that humans find unintuitive, it's really hard to answer this question of like, uh, if a human designed this thing, would we actually feel the same way about it? So, yeah. Miega Kure, is that how you pronounce yep. it? Like, well, I don't know. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's how I've been pronouncing it. Like, that is a really complicated game. Like, it's really complicated yeah. to explain to other people. If an AI came up with it, we would we would say, you know, oh, this AI just views the world differently. It's obviously a wild idea for a game. But the human has come up with it. It's yeah. just that, you know, it's he, he's trying to change the kinds of games that we play. So it's really hard to draw that kind of distinction, I think. Yeah, I go into that. I mean, it, it hinges a lot on does the AI pitch it as here's a game about a four-dimensional puzzle garden. Right. Because if you say four-dimensional, then I'm looking for that. Okay, how does this, because I don't know what that is but I know it's going to be weird and I know that the, th the three dimensions I can see will change and then I'm hooking all that up to that. But that requires a kind of intentionality that's very human and, and the human knows, oh, no one's done this, I'm going to do this, uh, stuff like that. And you've also hit on this thing which we call explainable AI, which is becoming increasingly a topic that you're either interested in or you think is anathema uh, in the AI community. 
but the idea that AI should be able to explain themselves. So for instance, the European Union made lots of uh, rumblings about this recently, where they kind of, they sort of wanted to make it law in the future that we can request an explanation for any algorithmic decision. Like, you know, if you, it seems so, like, sort of weak as a defense against AI. Why when they conquer you? us, we'll at least have the right to say, look, can you just explain this? Yeah. Come on, come on. Seriously. Why did you we destroy can't stop Bolton? You, but could you just give an account of your actions, please? <laughs> Dissolve me in acid, fine, but at least tell me why. Um, no. Uh, so, I mean, you know, for some people, this actually comes back to like, uh, even something like the Steam Recommender, you know, some people just want a recommendation, and then they want to play that game. Um, but in many cases, or, or for many people, it's important to explain why. And I yeah, think when you talk about, point? yeah, yeah, and especially when you're selling games, like, why did you make this game? Angelina does not have an answer to that right now. And it would be great to say, well, because I was playing Alan Hazelden's latest puzzle game, and I wondered what would happen if you changed the rules to be like this, which is mm. often like, it's something I hear you say, Tom, sometimes. You, yep. you play the game and you thought, what would happen if blah, 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 blah. And I say that because people are way more forgiving of your weird, broken thing if they know <laughs> why you made it, which definitely could help an AI. Absolutely, <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. that's a really interesting point because like, the stories around games are as, you know, can be as important as the game itself. Mm. I yeah. Think, yeah, like you can get very, very slight feeling games that feel really weighty because because you understand about the person who made it or the ideas yeah. they were yeah. meant to mean. And like my my PhD thesis was officially on evolutionary computation. I was going to ask you very about what you done talking about yeah. <laughs> evolutionary evolutionary computation. Okay. Um, so uh, just like a, a, a particular kind of computational algorithm that's inspired by the theory of evolution. Um, but in reality, half my thesis was talking about like the social impact of AI and why it pays to have an AI engage with people for exactly the reason you've said, because stories matter to people and explanations matter. And Angelina is, has been designed to be a more honest system. Like it, it uh, not in the sense that the system is honest, but I have designed it more honestly. It, it shows mistakes and it explains what it does and its games aren't very good. And yet, despite all of these things, a lot of people, like a little community has grown up around it because people relate to the system and uh, its trajectory, its growth and its ability. Like even though it's making bad games, they feel like they have a, a better connection to it, I think, than if it was just press button. Get yeah. Yeah. I think I think it's important that it's called Angelina. Like right from that moment, you're kind of created a character that people... Yeah. And, and I'm sure there's meaning in the fact that it's a, a female name. Well, 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 I know, you should ask. I know. Yeah. I know, that's and it's, like, that's not a criticism, you know. It's, no, no. But it's clearly like part of it, you know. Yeah, that's that's been a really difficult, um, like, that's been a really difficult part of the project over the years. Because when I was starting my PhD, this was just like a project. I didn't know, I didn't know anyone would care about it. Slapped a name on it, moved on. It was an acronym that, you know, like suited it at the time. And now, of course, it has all this weight, like all of the most oh, trivial. Please don't, please don't ask me, Tom. Damn it. <laughs> on behalf me. of our listeners, I should ask you what the acronym please, is. Please, I just... Okay. <laughs> They're going to be trying it in their head. I know, I know. <laughs> Shall I, shall I try and guess? And please, then you, could, you then will never guess in a million years. A new game <laughs> engine. Well, le let's invent. <laughs> no. I've got nowhere to go from it. Uh, anything. <laughs> let's invent no anything. It's almost as, it's almost as good uh, as what I had. I, I just I just wanted a, a recursive acronym. So it's... Um, uh, which is like... So it was just shoehorned in. Because again, I just want to stress, I didn't think anyone would care about anything I did ever. Um, so the acronym is a novel game-evolving lab uh, rat I've named Angelina. Uh, so, you know, but, so it definitely... It definitely helped people attach to the to the project. 
Um, and over time, I've realized that, you know, anthropomorphizing these systems is risky. Yeah. Um, and it's risky because it raises people's expectations. And then when you can't meet them, they actually feel negatively towards it. Um, and so that's that's one of the reasons why I've tried to move away from anthropomorphism. But the name has remained. Um, and since then, you know, I've, I've had it explained to me, for instance, that there is a long history of male AI researchers naming their systems yeah. after women, things like this, like yeah. things that I just didn't think about back in 2010. Um, and so the name will probably be being retired at some point, like in the future, like on this project I'm on right now, that's like one of the things I want to do is the system, like maybe the, the version on my laptop, people will still refer to as Angelina, but the system as a whole, like you might have your own system and it will have its own name. Maybe you'll pick a name for it, or maybe it will just be some generic collection of words. But, um, I want to take that leap into not having a name and yeah. still seeing if I can make you care about it. Like still seeing if I can make you relate to and it. I think that's, it's a, that's, harder, a, that's a worthy experiment. Right. The whole, the whole process is, is actually really instructive. And it ties into your thing about being, uh, developing it in an honest way as well. Like the sort of giving it a human name is as if we're trying to suggest it was a human intelligence made it. And right. of course you're not trying to suggest that. So, and it, and it creates awkwardness either way. Right. Because I don't know what you would call it otherwise. Uh, yeah. you could call it like, my, my supervisor's system was called The Painting Fool. It was an artist. <laughs> uh, some people call things with like aspirational names. Someone named a system after a Greek god because it had like two halves and it was called Gemini. Okay. Um, huh. Gemini's a, a really cool automated game design system. Um, but it feels like, you know, any kind of name has drawbacks. So um, I was speaking to Holly Nielsen, who's a historian of games, um, and she suggested that you just let people name it. Like, uh, <laughs> if you have a, a version that sits at the Crate and Crowbar and makes games on the Discord for people, then let the Discord name the system. Uh, you know, they'll come up with their own name because... Gamey McDesigner face. Yeah, I have no doubt. I have absolutely no doubt. Um, yeah. There was something you said earlier about um, how a game by an AI... Uh, might be perceived differently to one if the same game was made by a human, mm. and in that case, perhaps less charitably in the case of uh, Miyagi Kuri. Uh, I also think there's an effect in the other direction for some things where if you know an algorithm generated it, it's good when it would be bad if a human generated it. And yeah. I'm thinking specifically of heat signatures names. It's just two ah. big lists. Hmm. And the ones that, that delight people when it comes up that it comes up with it would just be things like magic glass or just something like that and if I name a character magic glass everyone's like why the fuck do you name it that like, <laughs> but when you know it was truly random and these, it's serendipity that these two things came together Absolutely. and it reads as if someone, someone just reads as like you know a claim about something um, and that would be awful if a human came out with it because it'd be like why are you trying to say that Why? Like, it's just really transparent I mean suddenly think of Hideo Kojima and <laughs> some people like that but uh, I think that's a great point I think that's actually one of the great things that generative systems can do and I think one of the things that people misunderstood maybe about No Man's Sky initially when it came out for instance was that if you have a universe that is endlessly full of perfectly beautiful things then beauty means something different yeah. and the great thing about No Man's Sky was that it had these, par these barren planets for instance mm. or you know some of the planets were less interesting than others because that texture makes makes the good ones significant you know yeah. Um, but, you know, generative systems can have all kinds of different aesthetics. Um, it's, but it's funny you mentioned we actually did a test to see if people would perceive a game differently if Angelina designed it. This is going back a few years now, but the system entered into Ludum Dare and uh, it's just a game jam where people make a game in like a weekend. It happens three times a year. And the system entered one game where we talked about it and we explained what Angelina was in the description. And then another game with a fake account, no explanation. <laughs> 
And people gave nicer reviews to the one where we explained it was an AI because right. people were like invested in the system. They kind of wanted to be charitable, I think. Yeah. Um, they rated it very high on innovation because they were really reviewing Angelina as a concept. Right. Like, all yeah. of these interesting like factors come into play. Yeah. Um, and you do see like this massive positivity towards the system. Like <laughs> it has a Twitter account and people miss it when it doesn't tweet. Like I've had people ask like where it's gone. You know, it's uh, it's fascinating to see these social reactions to, to AI systems. That's why, you know, when I see like big corporate scale AI, like it can be a bit depressing sometimes because they kind of, it feels like they want to shave that off sometimes and like get rid of that personal connection that people have. Um, but people like connecting to their technology on a personal level. Mm. Do you think like in level generation and level design, if you, it's a cliche that if you come across like a room full of weapons and pickups and stuff, you know a boss is coming, right? Or it's a really, really <laughs> difficult challenge. We read intent into level design. If mm. we know a human designed it, then when we get rewards, we wonder why. Uh, and right now with procedural generation, you don't want that. Like if Diablo drops two rare items in a row, you don't think, oh, what terrible thing is coming? Because right. you read no intent into it. You know, it's random. Um, do you think we'll get to that point with proc gen levels? Or is it going to be like where we trust the proc gen thing so implicitly or we know it's this sophisticated that when it does one thing to us, we expect something to happen next just because we think, well, a good level designer would do this and this is a good level designer. I think the first thing that's likely to happen is not that we think a good level designer would do this, but people will start to read algorithms. Yeah, yeah you can you can probably see the rules. Because I'm thinking about unexplored and the ah, way it's generated. Like, yeah. So you, if you find a key, then you know there's a door. And which is actually the same for Brogue and other things, you know, but, but like there's, there will always be an up there. Each level is so, um, self-contained yeah. and with an answer to every question in it that you'd kind of like, you can read them, which is actually a strength in the, in that, in that game, yeah. because you need to be able to, to read a, a roguelike like that. One of the interesting things about Unexplored was that it, it kind of made a big deal in its marketing about its cyclical dungeon generation. Yeah. And what that meant was, after a while, I, I started realizing if I ended up in a room that seemed like a dead end, I right. knew that there was almost <laughs> no way it was. So I would like creep, you know, poking the walls yes. and looking for like a way out. So in a way, it like gave you this secret bit of information. But like you said, it didn't ruin the game or anything. Yeah. It just like made you look at a level a different way, which yeah. I think is very cool. That's, That's interesting. I, I kind of um, sort of this might be a bit of an oblique connection, but um, I interviewed um, uh, Arby. Uh, oh, is it Arby Takari, who uh, the maker of Barbar is you? Oh yeah. And he was telling me about um, how the game came about. It was a, a about it was um, initially uh, a game jam game, and when he was making the game jam version of the game, he saw it as a, a turn based block puzzler inspired by kind of soccer band likes. Um, but he was wondering, like, should I've come up with this word system in there? Should this be a puzzle game? Or should it be a sandbox? Because he was he was experiencing as he was making it, people coming watching his screen and going, "Oh my God, you can put all the words together, and then all the rules of the level change." And so he was thinking, "Well, maybe I should really play up to that and give people to play stuff to play with." So he came up with a bunch of um, words which have no function, but they just change the aesthetics. Like I think one of them was um, wonder, and another one was um, our best. And if you put best on something like Baba is best. You just get twinkles coming. <laughs> but then you realise that as the game became more and more puzzle-based, you realise you couldn't have them in there because people would have automatically yeah. assumed that best was part of the solution. Mm. And there's like a whole swathe of games that become impossible if not everything is functional, you know. And, yeah. and that seems a rule which AI is probably 
get into quite a lot. I wonder, because I remember like Stephen Sausage Roll, I could only complete levels in that by working on the assumption that if there's if there were on like a rectangular island and there's one little block that sticks out into the sea, <laughs> I have to go on that block. So that, that block will be used. There's a reason it's there. Yeah. And so that's that's kind of a hard and fast rule. It, it feels like, you know, there's everything is there for a reason. But then it's not trivial to translate that to how an AI would do it because an AI doesn't have necessarily have the same concept of like, what is not putting that block there? Like, why is the, just the rectangle more logical? Like, if there's just a rectangle, I don't assume maybe space in the rectangle is needed. There could be blank spaces there that don't do anything. But when you have one block sticking out, I see that, oh, that's an anomaly. That's weird. Why is that there? And in that particular case, it would be easy to define a rule that would, that would cover that. But there's all kinds of things where, like, to a human, the simplest thing is not what necessarily um, an AI is going to see it as unless you really have a sophisticated way of detecting that. And then that depends on who's making the game, right? Because Stephen, like Stephen Lavelle's game design is extremely precise and focused. Yeah. Something like Hyperlight Drifter had this aesthetic that was a little bit messy. There were things that were like yeah. poking out of the world. And so it comes back to what you were saying of like, you know, AI struggle to understand things that don't necessarily have a function or some AI do. Angelina is definitely one of them. Um, and I have actually, one of the things I, I'm working on right now is once you've finished designing a level, you go back and you start trying to reduce it. So it is actually kind of the thing you were talking about where you remove something and you see like, does this level still make sense? And you start to shave bits off. But of course, the problem with any 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 instruction you give to an AI is that they take it too far, you know? So, so the thing with that is that you will end up with a level where there is literally only things which are required to solve it in the level, like nothing else, like no, no like open space or ambiguity or anything. You know? and if it's you just, just a like, corridor to a key and then yeah. a door. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, you know, it's, it's so difficult because a lot of it just comes down to, in, in real life, it would be what is the taste of the designer and, and which designers do I like resonate with and things like that. And for AI, we haven't reached that point of thinking about the systems in that way yet. And that's partly just a question of time, I think, you know, more people working in that area. Um, but it is also just a hard problem. And that, that's why I like the social aspect of it, because, you know, I think if there were 500 Angelinas in the world, which is what I'm hoping uh, in, the, in the near future, um, then we can start asking questions like, what makes this one unique? Um, and one of those things might be, what is their tolerance for unnecessary items in a puzzle game? You know, it would be like a minor thing, but yeah. that might be something that distinguishes one of them from another one. Yeah. You're saying it's hard to get Angelina to understand why walls are good? Oh my God. <laughs> Just like walls are so good. <laughs> walls are the best. And, and then you try and describe why walls are good to someone and they look at you like, you know, you're like you're looking at me right now. Um, so the thing is that... It's walls are conceptual, right? That's the problem. This is this this section out of context is going to sound even for this podcast is going to sound weird. Um, so the the problem is like walls. Yeah, this is something we've been we've been looking at lately. Is that actually we were kind of were talking about earlier about paintings are things on a canvas that you look at, right? But games have these two layers. They have what happens in code and what happens on the screen, and then the player sees what happens on the screen, and the designer sees what happens in the code, and walls are things that don't do anything they that is, that is the defining feature is that they do nothing and they don't allow anything to happen to them um and what that means is if you tell angelina like well one of the problems we had early on was that it was just throwing stuff into the rule set and if if it wasn't necessary it would just it wouldn't affect the rules in a bad way so you would just have like blocks of cheese in every level that didn't do anything because they had no reason to remove them. Right. So then I said, well, if there's something in here that isn't used, just get rid of it. <laughs> but walls don't do anything. I can't, I can't explain to it. Like walls allow you to design better games. Yeah. Like you can't tell it that. So it starts doing weird things like 
using enemies instead of walls and the enemies move. And to Angelina, this is not more complicated, really. It doesn't have a notion of like perceptual complexity. <laughs> but to a human, this is like, this is so, like, I can't, the, the space is not being constrained in any yeah. way. There's things running around. And it reminds me of like old ZX Spectrum games where it was just like a screen of enemies and power-ups and you just had to like <laughs> run around it and hope you survived. Um, and of course, you know, there will be ways around it, but uh, it's you very almost, frustrating. I wonder if you almost want to like have layers of of generation because I feel like a, a, a level that we recognize as like a decent level and a side-on puzzle platformer type thing starts by being an incredibly boring space in which nothing interesting can happen. Mm. And then you add a goal, and then you add a player, and then you add something preventing them from getting to the goal, and then you add some mechanic that doesn't get over it. Um, but all of that, it's kind of true that most of those walls don't have any point. Like, you know, uh, gunpoint, all the buildings are just rectangles stacked on top of each other. Most of those <laughs> walls don't need to be there. Yeah. But I want to make something that looks like a building because once you have that as framework and context, then everything else has meaning within that. And so even games that aren't really trying to realistically depict anything, I think the, they have those walls just to sort of show, here's a space that you might be able to relate to. Here's something that looks a bit like a building or a bit like a maze or a bit like just something that we're accustomed to being in. And then from there, let's build a, a game on top of that. Yeah. Yeah. The idea. So there's so many different ways you can attack it, right? And and I think a lot of it comes down to the kind of designer that you are as well. And like all of us could, all of us are a certain type of game designer, even if we've never made a game before. <laughs> you know, we, in our conversations with friends or, or like this podcast, you know, we express little things, ways that we think of problems and things like that. Um, and I think one thing that I want to do is not worry about like, is the layered version. Is the layered version like the best way to do it or is it a good way to do it? But to build systems that are able to come up with these arbitrary ways of representing problems or these arbitrary ways of attacking problems. So yeah, like this version of Angelina always puts, um, you know, it, it adds in elements one by one. Or maybe this version of the system starts with a solution and then mm. adds things around it that complicates it. You know, I think like that's um, that's like this kind of meta level of how do you, how do, you do game design, um, which is something that we haven't looked at much yet. Um, and I think some of these problems are scary because there's no right answer. Um, and actually the field I work in is officially called computational creativity. And we're basically defined as the people who solve problems that don't have optimal solutions. Like there is no one yeah. answer. There's no like one painting. Um, and they're always the scariest problems, but they're always like the most fun to attack because, you know, every approach, like that idea of like building up a level in bits and pieces like, yeah, that would totally work. I could imagine an AI system that did it. And it wouldn't be the, you know, it's not like I've discovered a law about the universe. It's not the answer to everything. It just happens to be one way of solving this problem. And once you implement it, you'll find out all the things wrong with it, all the things it does better than the others. Um, and I don't know, that's why that's why things like this conference are so fun, because you see, you see all of the ways people have, like, inched forward their little area over the last 12 months. And it's things like that. It's like, what if we did it yeah. this way? Um, and it doesn't solve anyone's problems forever. I haven't cured cancer or anything like that. <laughs> um, but we're all thinking about the problem slightly differently now. Yeah. And that's why it's fun. Thinking about it, I, I always end up with, by the end of making a game, I do have kind of a formula for how you make a level for that mm. game. Like, obviously, heat sick, I literally try to write a formula. <laughs> here, here, computer, is how you make a heat sick level. Uh, for Gunpoint, it was much more of like a messing around and going too far in a puzzly direction at first, where there was only one solution to every level and people just felt like they had to do it. Uh, and then to fix that, went too open-ended and uh, everyone would just find a solution because there were so many that worked and they would just think this is super easy because the first thing that occurred to me worked. 
uh, and then ended up the, the formula for a gunpoint level ended up being uh, the outside, starting from outside a building, getting into it is open-ended and there are four or five different solutions, all kinds of ways of doing it. Huh. Just set up a few uh, very uh, weak obstacles, lots of freedom. And then the closer you get to the objective, the more we constrain you. And then usually the last door before the objective, there's only one way to solve it. And that's the part where we're trying to teach you something new. And like, unless you understand how to do X, you won't get in there. But because you had that kind of open-endedness before, you're kind of, um, you're okay with it. It doesn't feel like the whole level was all one, was just Simon says. It's kind of, you had your, you've had your fun. I've solved the fucking puzzle. (laughs) (laughs) That's fascinating though. Like that, that kind of thing I really love when someone, so one of the ways Angelina designs levels right now is actually inspired by something Alan Hazelden told me about how he designs uh, puzzle levels. And so we kind of like, I kind of encoded that and, and saw if that was like a good way to start. But that's amazing. That's like, you know, no one's going to make levels for gunpoint again, probably, right? But that's like this whole process. Well, that it has about. actually a level editor and a Steam Workshop, actually. <laughs> so I hope the community will continue their I vibrant guess. work. I, they might be making levels right now, as we say. Um, but then even they wouldn't have your formula. Yeah, um, that's true. So, like, that's like a fascinating piece of design knowledge that you've developed over years. It'd be amazing to capture that somewhere. Like, you know, maybe I should write that down and, you know, archive yeah. them. Right at the moment, you fully understand how to make a level for your game. You finish the game in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It anyway. That kind of comes of, you know, most, you know, writing writing a, uh, a feature you struggle with the first yeah. sort of bit like even if it's not the first few sentences that will end up being the first sentence in the thing is the getting and finding the voice and then it's only at the end you're able to sort of steam ahead and kind of it, you have to set up the rules for yourself for the thing you're making which you don't know what it is so you can't make rules for it at the start and then it kind of makes itself known. Do you find yourself having to like go back to the beginning because you understand the whole thing differently now and then yeah, redrafting? Yeah, usually, and... yeah, yeah, you kind of um, usually the start because you suddenly realise, oh, I've answered a question that, that I didn't actually pose. At the start <laughs> I thought it was about something else back then. So, yeah. That's the ultimate writer hack, isn't it? Like, yeah. how do you get the end to loop neatly back to the beginning? Well, when you've written the end, think about what would loop neatly back to. <laughs> well, yeah, the class, yeah, yeah. That's one of the things humans are amazing at that uh, AI are, are generally quite bad at, right? So there's every chance that when Angelina has been trying to reinvent Soccer Band because I'm trying to convince it that walls exist, <laughs> um, it might have come across a game that is so beautiful it would make the three of us cry just to describe <laughs> it right now. And it's like, well, this isn't what I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> the trash can. That's it. Uh, it's throwing this. The, like, I don't know. Masterpiece is away. Could be. Uh, probably not, admittedly, but it could be. You know, like, uh, and. Humans have this like amazing brain that notices, you know, it sparks off other things um, serendipitously uh, and uh, AI are not so good at that yet. So that's that's what you know, that's what makes me feel good is the idea that I'm sure Angelina has made IGF award winning games. It's just that uh, it needs to recognize them. It's a very philosophical <laughs> a no way of thinking about for. it. You know? <laughs> it makes them every day, probably. I just need to teach it what to look for. It's uh, talking of games that so may or may not be good. Yeah. <laughs> You've got Gamescom coming on, the yeah. other event. It, it's got like, everyone's talking about like watching Gamescom. And I'm like, what, are you, what is what that? What do you watch? I've never done that before. <laughs> but Jeff Keighley made it a watchable thing. Oh, he, he, was, he was... Opening Night Live, it's called. And it's a, it's, a, it's an event, don't you know? <laughs> now it is. Um, giving it the Jeff I kind of, I actually appreciate it because like, if the hard thing is keeping up with what the hell is going on and if there's just yeah. one thing I can watch that's like two hours long I didn't I didn't watch all of it I watched it after the fact and skipped through the bits that were boring but <laughs> <laughs> just like condense it and show me some things that you say are a big deal and, and I'll pay some attention to them yeah. whereas usually Gamescom kind of passes me by and if there's a if there's a trailer that's you know of something that um, 
that I was already excited about or from a developer I'm already, I already like, then I'd check that out. But other than that, it's, it's not an event the way E3 is. E3 is like... Well, the plan these was times. you 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 announce the game at E3 and you show a bit more of it. Yeah, at, at and the then Gamescom. Um, Cyberpunk of actually it hasn't happened yet, but um, their pattern has been to show, uh, sorry, uh, show press a behind closed doors demo of Cyberpunk at E3, and then at Gamescom show a video of that entire thing. That's, okay. what, that's what they did last year, and they're planning to do it this year. I'm pretty sure I heard that the stuff people were talking about at E3 will come out as a video during Gamescom this year. Oh, wow. Um, but it's interesting because last year it was like the buzz from press seeing it behind closed doors was extraordinary and you're imagining what the hell is this game and then the recent video and it, it was really cool and it, uh, but this year the buzz from press seeing it behind closed doors has been mixed to the best oh. I would say there's a lot of the word that I keep hearing is mortal like oh it's a game it's, a, it's just a game like other games you know right. it, it has all the problems that you expect <laughs> from a video no game that's kind and but yeah the last year the year before the, the demo was kind of it, you know had that kind of it's an awful phrase to use, but like next gen E feel like, oh, this is actually like mm. everything in this is kind of a level beyond what we've come to. Even the UI was like, wow, that's really nice UI. Um, and apparently that that's sort of at E3 for a lot of journalists that what they saw was a bit of a step down from that. So who maybe they'll they won't release the video, but I expect they probably will because they you know uh people are so excited about that thing that they'll get a positive reception. They gotta keep we, feed the pump. Yeah. Uh <laughs> What did we see from Gamescom? Uh, Kerbal Space Program 2 was announced. Yeah. That's exciting. What more can you do, though? It's all space. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. You can go to other stars. Other space. Because it has interstellar travel, apparently. That's cool. That is good. So you presume you've got to plan going, oh, my God. This means that fundamentally you've got to have like a time system in it which kind of can kind of zip forward like oh, yeah. years of time. Not mean, like you need to plan like ships that can sustain life over. I guess so. Yeah. Like I don't know. You're all looking at me. Really? Like, <laughs> yeah, Tom. Tom I didn't watch like, this trailer. We've just become <laughs> interested in this simply by thinking through the premise. <laughs> that Kerb- means it's probably going to be a successful game. <laughs> <laughs> Kerbal is a very like strangely realism focused thing. Mm. Like uh, I remember yeah. the, the classic kind of. Um, characterization of Kerbal is from Randall Monroe, who does XKCD, who used to work at NASA and did a graph of like uh, like knowledge of orbital dynamics over time. And it starts sort of very low, bumps up a bit when it goes to NASA and then skyrockets when it starts playing Kerbal Space Program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, I've got very, very tired of all the land moon, uh, moon landing stuff uh, um, in the last what, a few weeks ago. Land mooning is pointless. Land the land doesn't care that you're showing it <laughs> Let's get the moon on the land. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I did appreciate what I did see in terms of explaining the process of going there and why, you know, mm. it's quite complicated. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, like... I'm we go to the moon not because it is easy, but because it is hard. <laughs> But it's, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Yes, that's good. <laughs> There's the verdict. <laughs> I don't know. Yes, it's I good. I ran out of steam there, didn't I? <laughs> I saw some rumblings that they're changing the modding system as well. So I think that was like a, a big thing about the previous one. So Right. Um, it's just going to be another thing that, that is, will be different about this, which is like a lot of the team have left because they oh, had a yeah. big, there was, I don't know the details, but there was some kind of big falling out between various yeah. parties involved in it. Oh, yeah. And I know of two different development teams that are formed entirely of Kerbal Space Program oh, programmers who are not the people making Kerbal Space Program 2. Yeah. So I don't know who's left, but it's, uh, it's a different team for sure. Huh. It'll be fine. 
Might not be fun. Brain crow verdict. I don't know. Yes, it's good, and it'll be fine. <laughs> I thought that your first game that you'd want to talk to was that uh, cyberpunky kind of stabby game, Ghost Runner. The it, yeah, pitched as well. I don't know if they pitched it this way, but it's reported as um, uh, sort of cyberpunk Mirror's Edge meets Dishonored, which is like wow. Okay, <laughs> I'm interested. I'm pretty sure they they actually took the exact falling down and stabbing somebody. It's got that feel, and it's also got the dishonored logic of, like, as long as you drop kill somebody, any fall is fine for you. (laughs) It's uniquely spongy. The high you're falling from, (laughs) it just makes it even more lethal for them. You're fine. No no going back there. (laughs) You transfer all the lethality into the body of what you land on. That is simple physics. Simple lethality (laughs) dynamics. First law of lethality (laughs) dynamics is the player takes no damage. (laughs) Um, uh, it looks very, very bit of Mirror's Edge. Yeah, yeah, and it's I that, that on paper it sounds a lot more exciting than the video was to me. The drop kill, I'm right there for that. If I'm assassinating mm. people and figuring out how to get like up really high to do cool drop kills, absolutely uh, cool. But then a lot of the video is sort of like here are two really conspicuous wall running walls. Jump between them in this yeah. prescribed way to get to where you're going. It, I hope that. If that's like, if there's a big open-ended level and that's one of the things I can do to get to the top of a tower to do that cool drop kill, then great. But if that's just, I have to get from A to B and this is the way you get from A to B, that's a bit less interesting. I don't normally feel charitable towards trailers like this, but there was something about it where I felt like, I am I feel like this isn't actually the parts of the game you meant to show us. Like, there was something about it where the, the, the presentation of it felt like, I think, I don't think that is all it is. Like, I think there are sections that, you know, are less, like you say, kind of artificially set up. But um, certainly, like, some of the bits they showed... Felt a bit like uh, yeah, very, like that Mirror's Edge DLC where there were just big geometric shapes floating oh, yeah. in space yeah, for yeah, no yeah, reason. Yeah. A little bit like that. Um, that was really like abstractly beautiful, though. It was. And this, yeah. this, looks, also, this it, looks fine. It, it but didn't it's not. have the Mirror's Edge story stuff. So uh, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a uh, but good swords though. Mirror's Edge. <laughs> that's my verdict <laughs> just wistfully saying it mirrors out of 10 okay. I remember uh, recently I was listening to a podcast I think maybe the Kotaku podcast where uh, one of the questions I had was like have you ever broken a controller <laughs> <laughs> yep mirrors edge <laughs> one of my favourite games of all time yep. oh wow uh, threw it against the wall <laughs> <laughs> it was it was an intensely frustrating game at times it would just because it would just it would Frustration is is a multiple of confidence uh, and catastrophe. <laughs> it's like how how sure was I? I knew how to do this, and how badly wrong did it go? Those two multiplied together, not added, multiplied. So if I'm and I played that game a lot, and I was like, I, I did reasonably well at it in general, but just sometimes the fucking grabbing just wouldn't happen, and it was always life or death, <laughs> and it was just. <laughs> but here you have nice, like, big, meaty targets to lock onto that you yeah. instantly uh, shove onto. I'm actually very curious about how drop kills work because um, Dishonored, uh, it's easy to forget when you, like, watch all the sort of super stealth kill montages of people doing incredible things. It's actually, like, jumping off... I mean, like, there's a really tall bridge in... I think it's Dishonored 1 mm. um, where it's possible to jump from the top of it and land on someone and stealth and you know, drop kill them and therefore survive the fall. Um, and it, like it's possible, but you have to really get that jump right. <laughs> like you need to time it right, and you know um, I don't think you have a lot of air control. And then playing like Assassin's Creed Odyssey, 
Like, just A, sucks you in. You just press a button to do it and your character just figures out how to do it. But yeah. also, B, even if you missed, you have, there's no fall damage. <laughs> so you're yeah. absolutely fine. And I have to say, I prefer that. I'd rather, like, can, can you just, look? I know what I want to do. My character can do it. Just do it, please. Uh, look, we both, we all know why we're here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> jump on Steve's head. Yeah. Um, we also saw a Watchdogs. Yes. Uh, a sort of... Uh, this felt like a bit of a recap of how that worked. We've seen a lot of headlines of like, this explains how the players anyone mechanic works. I think they already explained that pretty much. There's nothing in here that I didn't already know about how it works. I think one thing which, in retrospect, I should have realised, but I didn't, was that uh, characters have randomised traits. I, I don't remember oh. that being made as explicit. But, I mean, right. it made sense to me because I thought, surely there can't be just, like, eight archetypes. It has to be more than that. And I guess these these little, like may have a heart attack while walking along the Thames uh, thing. It's like a trait that you have. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was the, they showed like a lawyer who has, uh, when they're on your team, I guess, that anyone who gets arrested, there's a 25% chance they just get out of jail for free. Um, yeah. And a, a brawler who, when they're drunk, only takes 50% damage. Um, I'm, I'm very interested how... We were talking earlier about how the player will kind of spot the algorithm. Mm. This is trying to relate those traits to the person's profession because it gives you, like previous Watchdogs games have done, they give you all this personal information about it. You're always violating people's privacy and finding <laughs> out like how much they earn and where they work and all this stuff. Um, and previous games, I'm you know, it wasn't surprising to me that they were able to do that because you just fill a giant spreadsheet full of facts and you know, <laughs> make sure there's probably some stuff about like you know. If they were an accountant, maybe they have to wear a suit or something, some restrictions like that. But it wasn't blowing my mind that this was possible. But if you're then going to tie gameplay traits to these things, mm. it's that it's easy. If you gave me eight gameplay traits and and a, and a hundred professions, I can find you professions that match those gameplay traits. But if you're going to give me a city of you know thousands of people, mm. and each one of those has to have a pairing of of job and trait that makes sense without it getting interminably repetitious. Uh, that's impressive <laughs> if they can pull that so off. So what I dare say they'll do is they'll put all the lawyers in the city bit, uh, you know, the <laughs> city of London, the city bit, they'll put the kind of the pensioners kind of that? like the dying 20% of the time or whatever it is, <laughs> pensioners, which somehow has a purpose. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, and I think so that's, on. that's not his only upside. I think he has a bonus with rifle damage because I think he used to be a soldier or something. Uh, but... Um, then the oh, so it's kind of like per. plus and a minus. Yeah, too, and I wouldn't be yeah. surprised if there's some kind of like economy going on there where if you have a drawback, you're allowed to have two advantages or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't seem like they're they're meant to be exactly equivalent to each other mm. in terms of power. Like you could probably just find one who's better than the others. But, but fundamentally, that'd be the same sort of general system as an RPG in which kind of you know the creature that you're looking for a certain kind of hide from to craft mm. the things found in this forest, you know? Yeah, it's just a case of like um making that match to real life London citizens. Like, because it's one thing to show a crowd of people and they get a reasonable diversity of what they look like and what you might assume about what they do or yeah. how old they are and things like that. And then to make sure their actual gameplay stats kind of match up with that. Like and, I say, you can do it for a limited number of those things, but uh, it seems like that pool would get stagnant really fast because mm -hmm. uh, you making gameplay to it. I guess if it's 25, like... 100% chance of blowing someone out of jail takes 10 minutes to code at most. <laughs> like, if your system's set up for that kind of perk, it's that's trivial. Uh, so if they're if they're just percentage buffs, then that's fine, I guess. It just it, I'm very interested to see how the promise you know the promise is impossible. The thing that they're saying you play as anybody, uh, well, they can't literally like 
what's the population of London? <laughs> it's in the millions, million, right? Yeah. yeah. So you can't literally have 12 million different NBCs. Uh, so there is some repetition. And so the whole marketing campaign for this thing is them telling us the thing we know can't be true and us trying to figure out which which compromises have you made? Because <laughs> we're excited about the like about something like this. If you don't, you can play as 80 different people. <laughs> I'm like, awesome. That's way more than any other game I can play of this kind. Uh, and I believe you can do that. <laughs> I think uh, the way that I would do it would be to... So in Phantom Doctrine, which is like this uh, spy-driven XCOM-like, yeah. uh, characters have traits, but sometimes you're only shown one of them and the rest reveal themselves over time. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if it sort of manages you seeing all of them too fast. By If you're just on the street looking at people, maybe you don't even know what traits they have. Um, and only like as you get closer to recruiting them does it become clear so that they mm. wait for people to invest time in someone before they reveal more of the, the possibilities. Yeah. So previous Watch Dogs games, when you sort of you looked at someone in analysis mode or with your phone out or whatever, mm -hmm. it would tag them and you'd see you'd, you'd see a fact, but it would be kind of random what that fact was. Right. So it might be someone's income, but it wouldn't you wouldn't see everyone's income necessarily. It would just sort of give you a weird little snippet. So they could do something like that where they're like, because um, I would bet that they generate it on the fly, would you think? Like as you, like, as you start yeah, investigating yeah, someone, yeah, they pick traits generate. that match yeah. what you already know about them. Yeah, for um, sure. And then, because they also have relationships and stuff, like the, the whole thing about recruiting them is you do some kind of favor for them. If they're resistant to dead set, you have to go and rescue their brother or help their... Uh, and uh, another thing I'm super curious about is how much variety do you have in those things? Because I made a game where you had yeah, each character had something you needed to do. And I started from the premise of like, these are going to be incredibly formulaic. <laughs> I will never be able to make these endlessly different. So let's just pick a few standard things that make a lot of sense and just plug names into that. But you didn't even have to worry about voice actors. The thing that yeah. blew my mind is that they voice acted that person explaining their motivation in the trailer. <laughs> um, I mean, I know that... Uh, I don't know. I mean, do you really think they've... I, mean, I think I heard there's 20 this? personas for people. Okay. So that's... It's not necessarily 20 different voice actors even. It's, mm. That's like... A combination of voice actor and personality. Right. So I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it's sort of like eight different voice actors, and each one does, you know, two or three uh, different personas, and then, you know, it, but even the job of like how you match those to certain appearances and stuff is quite a big one. As you say, the problem isn't how many there are, because you know, as you say, eighty would be an incredible amount. The, the problem is how many are people expecting when they enter this yeah. game. And this is, uh, yeah, sort of starting to get a bit of a No Man's Sky vibe. In terms of like, <laughs> make sure you're not, like, when people's expectations are sky high, your job is to manage them, not to keep increasing them. <laughs> so just, like, make sure people understand the practicality of what this really is. I mean, I don't even care. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, you're just playing with a different, like, fucking avatar. Of course. With, a, with a mild, different stat line. So, like, come yes, on. but I, I do care about it. <laughs> Or I think I will because or the thing that excites me about it is the idea that they're kind of resources that you kind of it's work to recruit them so getting a good one means something and therefore losing a good one also okay. means something so if I put in you know this person had this, this amazing pair of of, um, of traits where like they get a 50% bonus to assault rifles and also all their weapons they fire are silenced or something and that's some especially good combination I see that in their info and I'm like okay I'll do whatever it takes to recruit this person and then when I do and I'm playing at that person that there's this extra tension of like god I really don't want to lose this character so if they can succeed in making me care that much about the differences in characters and obviously there's this permadeath thing uh, that could add a lot I think yeah fair enough yeah, yeah. difficult 
They'll solve it. <laughs> It'll be fine. This is It'll a fine. catchphrase of games yeah, coming. It'll be all right. Don't worry about it. I think I'm a bit of a Ubisoft fan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like I really, I, obviously, I've been a long time Far Cry apologist. Like every new Far Cry game that comes out, and everyone's mad about it. I'm, I agree with all of their criticisms, but I really love it because the gameplay systems are getting so much more competent, and they're just refining this. It's a craft of making gameplay systems that work in, in an open world game like that, and especially stealth systems yeah. and open world stealth. Uh, stuff is is very much my jam and they're just getting better and better at it with every iteration even as they fuck up the plot stuff in a new way each time <laughs> um, and then you know I've been obsessed with Assassin's Creed Odyssey now and like Origins I really really liked and I talked about what I liked at the time and then Odyssey just crossed some threshold where I'm just like okay now this is my catnip I can just play this forever <laughs> it's because their systems got better and they're just good at like they make a game and some of the systems work and some of them don't and then they refine it and that's what they get flat for is, is their open world games are so they have so many things in common, but that's because there is an element of science and an element of craft to making these things work in that catnip way. The thing that's working for me is this kind of, oh, you just got everything right. It all functions in the way that I want it to work and I can do the things I want to do. And uh, you've figured out a way to make me excited about progressing and about exploring and all this other stuff. And, you know, even, even amongst all the people who are bitching about seeing too many icons in their minimap, the games are still selling really well because there's a whole load of people who just like things that work well. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I'm one of them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I have a lot of faith that, you know, I've watched Dogs 2. I never played Watch Dogs 1, but I really like Watch Dogs 2. And from everything I've heard, from like literally every person who's played both, Watch Dogs 2 is far, far better. Oh, yeah. They'll probably make this one better than Watch Dogs 2 because <laughs> yeah. they're just good at iterating on things and getting better at the craft and understanding what, what works and what doesn't. Yeah, the only thing that seems dramatically different is the tone. Like, the tone shift from Watch Dogs 1 to 2 was really good. And I, and I am not sure where Legion is landing yet, because we're still so, in trailer so one mode. Was, one was kind of edgy. Yeah, it was very edgy. Yeah, two two was kind of... Two seemed, from the, I didn't play either of them, from the outside, it seemed kind of to have a sense of fun, yeah. but but not sort of like a... Uh, didn't didn't take pleasure in in awful things. Yeah, exactly. It, like mm. guns were not really a thing. At all. <laughs> uh, they were. You you can't. Everyone you you take out in Watch Dogs Two is dead. Uh, your melee weapon is like a a, a snooker ball or pool ball in a like sling, and you whack people with that. Those people are dead. <laughs> they never get back up again. Uh, it's it, it's it says it has stab that. master general. <laughs> <laughs> look his signature makes a very clear delineation between people who are knocked out and people who are dead um, and so does Gunpoint but it doesn't have any gameplay consequence <laughs> um, it, so you watch Dogs yeah it did have this bright and breezy atmosphere and they, it felt like the game hadn't quite caught up to it and actually Assassin's Creed hadn't until I, I feel like Odyssey might be the first one where you can do non-lethal could you do it in, in Origins Previously, like, you just kill everybody. <laughs> yeah. And in Odyssey, the only option is you can kill them or you can make them work on your ship, <laughs> which everyone is up for without question. Uh, and those are the only two ways to take out enemies. Um, but yeah, this, this... I don't know anything about whether the new Watch Dogs lets you... Is there non-lethal stuff in it? There must be. Tasers. Yeah, it's I ringing a bell, actually. You can punch people. That normally implies... Not lethal punching, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah. You can nag them online on, uh, <laughs> on your phone. Yeah, you can just phone. not recruit them. <laughs> <laughs> Passive aggressively not recruit them. But the um, the trailer had a certain kind of 
irritating kind of frivolity while watching they, two people <laughs> smash each other's faces in yeah. in a fucking alley. I think they do have a tone problem, and and they also have a voiceover problem. The first, the voiceover of the last trailer was awful because it was obviously not someone who actually has that accent because they just seem to get certain like vowel sounds wrong. Um, and this one, they've changed the voiceover actor, but it took a second watching just now to to twig what we felt off about it, and it feels like the script was written for the last voice actor. <laughs> in that it's just kind of uh, trying to be, it's kind of like a tough guy kind of uh, colloquialisms and just tr- like trying to sound like that. But then the voice actor they've hired is a, a much more kind of middle class kind of guy. <laughs> he's still try- they're still trying to emphasise their Britishness and their accent a little bit, but it does. Oh, he's, he's got a bit. He's got a bit of London in there. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, but it's like it, it, there's like a very sharp delineation from the bits that are London and the bits that aren't. Yeah. yeah. It's it's strange that they keep fucking this up because London's not an obscure like <laughs> it's little where they town out of the way. To set the game. Sure, don't Ubisoft have an office there somewhere? Surely they must do like some kind of office. I know it's in Guildford. Uh, okay, could they make a field trip? <laughs> just, <laughs> just set it in Guildford. It out. <laughs> They'd like to find one person who's lived in London for a long time and speaks like that. Ah, was there uh, anything? Yes, else? there was Amplitude's thing, which is called Humankind. Oh, yeah. uh, which is so Amplitude the, the makers of Endless Legend and Endless Space and all that stuff um, and now they're making a sieve it seems this is Humankind is uh, looks like a sieve <laughs> that's what I got <laughs> like there's a long CGI trailer that meant nothing to me and then did it have like, cavemen in it? Uh, I don't recall did it the CGI have bit did. Athenians in it? Uh, look, it was CGI, so it, it, I literally my brain just switched off until I saw something look like a game, and then I paid attention to that, so I can I, tell you all about the bits that look like a game. I think there was like a caveman at like a DJ deck or <laughs> okay. something. That was that's like this what I remember. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's how I remember it. Like, I, I don't know. Uh, I skipped to the end where there was like hexes and shit. <laughs> and <they were> like, <laughs> okay, no, now it's a game. Okay, right. now now you're telling me something. What's the tone of the music? So like, because I'm still, oh, I, I still get. <laughs> You know the you know the civilization Baba Yeti. Four, yeah, oh, fucking yeah. that's yeah, yeah. really good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, mean, did you like Endless Legend? Did you yes, play Endless Legend? I do. Like I Endless did Legend. briefly, and I liked it, and then never went back to it. Yep. <laughs> <I've> actually, <laughs> there's something about it which I just found found really hard to pass. Like, yeah. I don't understand what the shorthand or all of the terms mean. The difficulty when, yeah. The translation is a translation yeah. job. It's yeah. So the thing that Endless Legend is really, really good at is all of the factions are really different in like a fundamental way. So there's one that lives on money. <laughs> they don't need food. Like the money in that world is called dust and they are these weird like hollow suits of armor with just like glowing dust flowing through them and huh. the dust is their life force. So if they can just get money, they, they can live off that. Uh, there's the necrophages who are just like um, uh, they can never be at peace with anybody. They're always automatically at war with everybody. And they, when they kill uh, a race, I think they eat the bodies, and that makes them stronger in some way. And so you're just—it's the death ball race. You make you get you know, this <laughs> one mob of necrophage troops, and they roll over everything, and they just get stronger and stronger. Um, and then there's like one faction that can only ever have one city, but it's a mega city and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And they can still like, I think they can claim other lands, but they have some, it's harder for them to defend because they can't really make a new city there. But it makes, they keep adding districts to this one mega city in the middle. Then there's one that I think their only city moves around. Maybe that's the same one. Maybe the mega city can move. Uh, but there's kind of like a nomad one and they uh, all trade in the game goes through them. So if, they're, if they exist in the game at all, 
every trade you do with everyone, they get a cut of it. They get some percentage of, of the money that you trade. Um, and then there's another one that I think was a DLC race that um, uh, they have a pair of traits that sound really funny together. I can't remember what they both are. Something like uh, loves technology but can't research. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> I love computers. If only I could actually conceive of one and kind of have it. <laughs> sort, of, sort of a doomed romance here. Star-crossed lovers, us and technology. Uh, but it turns out they, they're the espionage faction and so they can only steal technologies. So they have to wait for someone else to research it and then they infiltrate them and they can take, they can take a tech that way. Uh, so they're really good at just making those factions completely different. And I love thinking that their take on Civ will just be like, Sweden can only eat the dead. <laughs> <laughs> British people can subsist only on dust. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be tricky, right? Because the thing that allowed them to do that unique stuff is much trickier when it's real nations. Then you yeah. end in like serious stereotyping territory. Like Civ always like dipped its toe in the edge of stereotype oh, lake. Yeah, 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 but. Yeah. Uh, Oh, it sounds like we won't be about to jump in fully, but it sounds like you have faith in them to make a good a good TBS. Yeah, I think so. They're just they're, their games are always interesting, and they always have a kind of yeah different spin on it. Um, a thing, a really nuts and bolts practical thing I really want them to do is uh, a thing that kind of ended up preventing me from going back to Endless Legend was just that it's so much about grabbing the best land first, and like Civ is, and that, that's the bit I love about Civ and you know, the land grab and in Gal Civ as well, that, that phase of like, oh my god, I've just found the pristine spot that has amazing resources. I must get there first. I will kill my own people to produce a settler faster if I have to. Uh, I've got to get it. Uh, and that part is thrilling. And in Endless Legend, the view where you can see what resources everything has, it just there's this one decision they made that I think is completely wrongheaded, which is even if it has zero of that resource, it still shows the icon and the number. And so every tile has to have like four different numbers and icons on it, even though most of them have zero of like most I of those things. You, there's nothing. So the, right. the ones that are valuable don't leap out to you. There's just this absolute wall of numbers. And you have to like really like scan over them to see, is that one good? No, that one's not good. No, is that one good? Is that one good? <laughs> like for God's sake, like just hide the ones that aren't special. And even, I think it's actually... It might not be true that, that like most of them have zero in most of the values. I think they might all have kind of one in most of those values, which is just nothing. You just don't care about it. It's it's the ones, some of them have five or six in one of those values. Fucking show me a bar graph. Like have, make those glow. They should be sparkling and exploding. Like the, the excitingness is there, but you're hiding it from me. And there's no reason to do that. It would be even more exciting if you could celebrate it and like bring it to the forefront. That's all we saw from Gamescom that caught our eye, I think. Mm. Yeah, uh, is, it, is it still going on? There might be some... Yeah, yeah that, that was... Yeah. That was it never ends. Nice no, it's, it's always Gamescom. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I think it's it does end on like Friday. It's, it's Gamescom somewhere, wherever you are in the world. <laughs> it's Gamescom in my heart. <laughs> um, another thing going on is the International. Yeah. yeah. So I can't speak to anymore. that, but Mike, you can. Yep, this uh, has to be at least one Dota person on the pod at all times. Um, yeah, it's uh, so this was the first year that it was taking place in China uh, instead of the US slash Canada, which is where it's been before. Um, yeah. And what that primarily means is that uh, I can't watch it as easily because uh, it's at a really awkward time of the day. Um, but uh, it's it's been fantastic. Um, it's It's been interesting to see the the change in the professional scene over the years as the focus has been more on like... Uh, developing this competitive framework where 
if you win a big tournament during the year, you earn points towards an invite. So some teams knew they were coming to the international, this massive, like, the tournament that matters. You know, it's 33 million this oh year, I think. Oh, my God. Right? Lord. I remember Absolutely when it was ridiculous. 2 million. Yeah, wasn't the yeah. first one, like, 1? One. Yeah. 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 And wow, then remember, that is you know, crazy. 2013 yeah. was 1.6 million. And at the time, that seemed like such a huge increase on 1 million. Such a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Whereas now, if you came, like, eighth you would win more money than the winners oh won in like one of the first ones so what is just for reference what was the Fortnite prize that was won recently it was a that was again Fortnite 30 prize. i remember 30 million i know that, that this is where i heard i know that they were investing 100 million in total right, right. into their pro- projects like over over a couple of years so i well, don't know epic. how much uh, yeah yeah so i don't know how much specifically the like the grand prize was at that because most of this money so. for dota comes from the the <laughs> compendium thing they sell right me from me and chris <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, Valve's, Valve's tactics for um, maximizing that have been interesting to is see that, a shift over the years. But just to get a picture of it, is is the increase all due to compendium sales or are Valve putting in more themselves? Um, I, no, I believe the, the starting pool was, you know, a couple of million this year from Valve and, and the rest has been from sales. Oh, and bearing in mind that, shit. like, <laughs> I think only like a, a quarter of what's spent goes into the yeah. compendium. So yeah, what Valve, you know, you know what Valve is making as a result of this, you know, and... In yeah, fairness, they're making ninety nine million. They're making a lot. <laughs> ninety nine million off that. And of course, like places like Reddit have very strong opinions on whether this is value for money or not. Um, I have to say, you know, as usual, the the venue itself is incredible. The things that they're they're doing, like on site, are really wonderful. Um, obviously, it's also making them a lot of money. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. Uh, at least, at least uh, partly. Um, but. I don't know. It, 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 there's something about the, the numbers involved are terrifying, but the spectacle of the event itself is still incredible. Um, and this is there's always a massive game changing patch after the international, or, or at least like a month after. And so this is there's no reason to save anything now. It's all cards on the table. These are the last six days of Dota that matter for huh. the rest of this season. If you have a strat that you've been hiding, now is the time to play. Um, <laughs> and you just see fantastic stuff. I mean, I don't know if I've missed maybe some pro games, but there's a, this hero called Io, who, as long as I've played the game, has been a support hero. The the supportiest of support heroes. Like, its only purpose is to connect itself to someone else and channel things into them. But not anymore. Now Io is being played by one team as the, the core of the entire team. It gets all of the money, all of the farm. It becomes this, like, ball of light that will destroy you in a couple of seconds. <laughs> and I just, like, couldn't believe what I was seeing the first time I watched a game do this. Um, and so this uh, these pros, like, come up with the strap that that works kind of in secret and they don't really show it in the in the proper tournaments until it really counts? It's it's hard to tell in some cases because these pro teams often scrim each other in private to practice. Mm. Um, and sometimes teams will say, you know, we, we saw this strategy in scrims, but it hadn't been used in a public match yet. Um, and they don't always share information about what goes on. Um, or sometimes a strat will fail in a scrim. And so other teams will be like, nah, whatever, we beat it then. And then it comes out in force, like on the main stage, and they've made a tweak somewhere, you know, um, which is really like. So they show us sort of like a weak version, and like, and then, then they. Or maybe like they just maybe, went back to the drawing board yeah. and, and they they figured out what was wrong with it. Um, I think that happens in the StarCraft 2 pro community is a lot of pro players have a second account, and that's what they use to play oh, on ladders. Ooh. So that not like if they have some crazy new strategy no one's ever seen before, obviously that, you know, um, that wouldn't keep that secret. But it means that when their opponent looks them up to watch all their matches, right. all their past matches, they've got something in the bag that the opponent hasn't seen. 
Well, one of the interesting things we've seen over the last couple of years is AI become a part of the team strategy, like coaches and mm. managers. Like there are, there are companies that produce tools to analyze replays for teams. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, there's actually a few papers at this conference of like, we can predict if someone is going to die in the next 30 seconds, or we can <laughs> predict who's going to win this game based on like who is farming versus who is killing people. You know, like there's a lot of like AI getting involved here. And for 35 million, like this why not? It. Like, yeah, because when it's 1.6 million, that's just like, that is a healthy sport, right? It's pretty good. Yeah. But then when it's 30 million, that's like a fucking industry. Do you, isn't there something with the companion where you sort of bet on it? Or do you get rewarded if, if the team you're rooting for wins something? There's, um, there's a bunch of things in the compendium. So one of them is you can predict things like which hero will be picked the most, which team will win, um, and you get little like point rewards for that. Um, can you... How late can you do that, and can the AI help? <laughs> uh, yeah, like so. So um, there's a, a guy called Ben Steenhuisen. Hope I pronounced his name. Probably not. That's why I did it in the, the lower voice. <laughs> um, but uh, he runs a, a website called DatDota with some other volunteers, which just analyzes reams of ProDota information, and mostly it's used by commentators and analysts. But every year he does this, like, I've crunched the numbers with some statistics and here are what I am putting in my compendium. And I, uh, I used his this year. Oh, I right. just used all of his suggestions. <laughs> um, and uh, his reasoning is, is really interesting sometimes. Like, sometimes he'll go against the what the computer says because, you know, he thinks that some factor isn't being included in uh, somewhere, which huh. I, I love reading those explanations. Um, um, but What do you get if you're right? You get uh, you get points. You know what <laughs> oh, points cool. mean? Uh, they mean tiny digital awards. Um, okay. So points unlock. Sometimes they unlock temporary things. So is this, is this, oh, sorry, is this a valve? Yeah, you have this little ticker in your compendium. So, so the compendium is like a digital sticker book, kind right. of. Um, and you actually get little player cards, which are used in a fantasy team thing. So there are like lots of little features. The ones that people like most are um, it unlocks special chat wheel commands just for the international. Um, and some of them are famous lines from previous commentaries. So if you've ever seen a clip of Dota where the commentator says something, you know, very, very loud and exciting. Like, it's a disaster. That's one of the expensive <laughs> ones. You're a very high level compendium to be able to say that. Um, <laughs> that's the only Dota thing I know. So last year, there was a very famous one where uh, a commentator called Odie Pixel shouted the name Seb, which was uh, one of the players. Um, and he shouts, Seb. Like, it's a really long Seb. And honestly, like, you know, on you one get that long Seb. <laughs> on one hand, I hate it because this was just designed to get more money out of you. The, the higher level your compendium is, the longer your seb is when you run the voice command. So there are people who have put hundreds of pounds that, that into is the compendium, and it lasts for like five or six seconds. <laughs> and it's so bad that it's the only voice line that you can't use for another 50 seconds, or <laughs> Because they know what's going to happen otherwise. Um, yeah, I have to kind of admire that grift. That's it's a, a great grift. Good idea. It's incredible. And what's, what makes it even more incredible is that obviously teams are now playing against that player and they have compendiums, and every time he dies, you get a bunch of Sebs coming out from uh, the opposing team. Or vice versa, like when he's doing well, his team will sometimes do it for him as well. <laughs> this like, is a, just... This is just blowing my mind. It's so meta. It's so, like, there's no, no existing sport has this incredible kind of layer of meta stuff, which is just commentating on itself, almost live. Yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's really fantastic. Um, and they, I, I don't know, you know, it's hard. Every year we ask, like, was the compendium worth it this year? Was it worth the money we put in? Um, but there's no doubt that, like, there's so much inventive, weird cultural stuff that comes out of it. Um, 
And yeah, the, the voice lines are a great example. Um, they had this other thing where you get like a number of drums uh, and you can like place a drum. And then if you right click as if you were attacking a hero, your hero will attack the drum and it'll make a little drum noise. <laughs> wow. And okay. for a while, like enemies could also attack the drums. And so uh, at the beginning of the game, you would just sort of like, sometimes you would like, you would have this awkward positioning where you weren't sure if a fight was going to break out. And now you just like put a drum down and everyone like plays the drums for a little bit. Uh, <laughs> completely bizarre um absolutely bizarre um of course they had to fix some exploits that came out because they didn't realize the ways in which people were going to use these things um but uh it's been it's been great um but one of the best things about it is the intense like all out every last drop of skill you know every minor calculation is coming in and it's only thanks to like the analysts and the commentators that you can really appreciate it or at least i can i'm I'm not a good enough player um so in in a game i was watching uh just last night a player on uh, the team EG, I think, steals an item from one of the other players. So this normally can't happen. Items in your inventory, like they don't exist in the real world. But for some reasons, certain reasons, like pro players will put an item on the floor. So let's say um, you have an item that restores mana over time, and you also have an item in your inventory that gives you plus maximum mana. So it's more efficient to drop it on the floor because the amount you're getting from this potion is going to be constant. Um, no matter whether you have this like bonus max mana or not. So I like I drop my mana boots, so my max mana goes from 400 to 200, and then when I drink the mana potion, and then I pick the boots up, uh, okay. it will now like proportionally, it's a little oh, bit I high, like it's, right, it's okay. such a fiddly like weird edge, edge case mechanic. Because it increases the rate. Exactly. Yeah, right. So it's very common to see pro players do this. And at some point, one of the commentators realizes that uh, S4 is running around with uh, someone else's boots. And you'd like, because you can hover over them and it will say owned by, and it will say the player's <laughs> name. Um, and then one of the other commentators says, but why hasn't he destroyed it? Because you can like put an item on the floor and attack it to kill it. Um, like, why, why carry it around with you? It's taking up space. So he can't use it? He can't use it. It's grayed out. It's like locked. There is no reason to have it. Sometimes you keep it as a trophy and then you drop it in front of the enemy <laughs> at the end of the game. But, uh, you know, not for $36 million. It's your mana boots, uh, motherfucker. <laughs> and, and after a while, one of the analysts says, well, of course he's going to keep it with him because when you die in Dota currently, the amount of gold you give to the enemy is based on your net worth. So the amount of all of the items that you have purchased and own. <laughs> And the way the game is coded, he still owns those boots, even though they're in someone else's inventory, which means he's worth more when you kill him. And one of the commentators was explaining, like, he thinks that that's the reason why the boots weren't destroyed. Because, and we're talking like, we're talking like a few pennies of gold, probably. But these players are at the top of the top of the edge. Like, every edge play you could possibly make, every, like, tiny advantage you could get over the enemy, that's what they're playing for. And these things are just, like... This, no, this seems a lot more logical than dropping the boots and attacking them. That seems like the irrational. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? Why do you need to destroy his boots? Well, normally you wouldn't even pick them up in the first place. Right? You know, you would just like attack them then and there. This um, actually, weirdly, this reminds me of a thing we saw today at the Roman Baths here in Bath that uh, struck me as emergent gameplay, which is, so at the, at the Baths here, one of the most interesting things uh, that you can see is the curses that people threw into them. So one yeah. of the things that like ancient Romans do is they write a curse on a little piece of lead and throw it into the Baths. And there's lots of things that are like, oh, the, uh, Tullius stole my robe, please. Uh, um, 
he is absolutely accursed. <laughs> Grumpy things that they say about this. Sometimes they give a list of suspects. It's one of these fucking eight people. which we Just was, get them all. Yeah, this, that this, way we can't fail. The logic of this is amazing because you're asking a god for help. So it's like the god will figure, well, God will know which one it is, but not from like everyone. Let's narrow it down. Everyone needs leads. Give it like usual suspects is one of these eight just to give you a hand. I know I know you're omnipotent, but like if you like, it'll probably help you out to know it's one of these eight people. Just to speed up the process. <laughs> one person said um oh x stole my i can't remember if it was like shoes or cloak or something um i give them to the god was aquasulis or something um uh so that you may you know exact whatever thing you need to get it back <laughs> like because he still owns the boots the fact that someone stole them from him he's still entitled to give them to the gods i these are technically mine i still own them i give them to you god between you two now, good luck against the god. Yeah. <laughs> you sort that out. I'll just sit here. Oh wow, that is the same. That Feels is like a life hack. The same as the, as the Dota hack. Yeah. <laughs> they were fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Did yeah. you done play any games lately? <laughs> Looking at me. Tom, I know you're itching. Uh, all right, all right, all right. So sorry, but I'm going to talk about Fire Emblem a bit. <laughs> I'm gonna with with some. Can you justify this, Tom? <laughs> Thank you for asking, because yes, I can. <laughs> Part of it is I myself have been craving Fire Emblem chat anywhere I can get it, and uh, I'm still surprised this doesn't make any sense. I know it's, I'm so shocked. It's unusual, even with a game I really like. You know, you know, I want to hear all the Outer Wilds chat if I possibly can, but um, not not to the same extent that I want to hear Fire Emblem chat. I want to hear everything everyone has to say about Fire Emblem chat, and that I realized. It's this is what gossip is. <laughs> Fire Emblem has a cast of like forty characters. I'm really personally invested in like nine of them, and hearing other people talk about those characters and just like either bitch about them or praise them or whatever, like all of it's good. I'm just like lapping it up. <laughs> yes, tell me what you think about Bernadetta. I have mixed feelings on her. Some people, a lot of people, just fucking love Bernadetta, and it's really interesting to hear why. And they all have different takes on those characters, and they have different like ideas about whether these characters are good or bad. And there's stuff like. Um, uh, there's this character Dorothea in in my class who uh, is very flirty and uh, she kind of is trying to be like a fun character, but a lot of that stuff falls flat. And I haven't been super enthusiastic about her, but when you trait- say, can we just yeah, you're saying I have not enthusiastic about her? Do you mean like as a person you're not enthusiastic about her? You just don't really like her, yeah. or are you saying as a dramatic character it's shit? Oh, well, once you get into the game, that kind of all fades away. <laughs> You're too in it. You're just like, I, I, it's, it's a, actually really strange. It's hard to step back and, and think about what the developers are doing and how much they know because the whole game is so openly, it just throws around terms like noble and commoner in a very casual way. And it has, most of your people you're dealing with are nobles, almost all of them. They're in a couple of commoners. And so it, it's very noble focus. It's about nobility and it's about almost all the characters you're asked to care about are literally the heirs to empires. They're hugely <laughs> important. But it just, it has this hint that it's somewhat aware of this. And you're working for this church and it doesn't feel like a good church. Just every, <laughs> there are just so many little red flags and like, these fuckers do not seem good. But it's, I'm 25 hours in and it's still, the shoe has not dropped. It's still like, we're still working for them. There's still no ability to, to do anything against them. But it's just, yeah, you, it, it, I really get the impression that the developers know uh, know that what they're presenting is not a purely good thing. And so 
and th- and then all the characters are kind of caricatured, but all of them have a bit of a journey that they go on. And so uh, there's a thing. Uh, this is only worth mentioning just let's laugh at me but (laughs) (laughs) and also the game because it's insane but uh, the whole thing is like you have the cast of characters and they by putting them next to each other when they fight they develop their relationships they get a little bond plus thing little heart symbols come out of them show they've bonded Um, and that's cool Uh, but doing that levels up their support level and the support level actually gives them a buff now although when they're standing next to each other they get 10 extra uh, aim or something um, but every now and then I'd look at the menu and next to the word support I had a little exclam and so I'd click on the word support and I'd see a big list of all you can choose any character and see their support level with every other character which is a huge number of combinations and I would see okay they, they have C in black and now the B is glowing blue cool they've hit B that's what, it, that's what it's telling me I quit out the menu and I go back to the game done that for 20 hours uh, Twenty hour 21 I look at that menu again and I, I'm sort of scrolling through it just looking at these these values and I try to quit out of the menu by pressing the button that on an Xbox controller would quit out of the menu but on a Switch controller confirms. Uh-huh. And by selecting the glowing B, it plays a cutscene that shows what happened when these... Well, in fact, what... Basically, by viewing that cutscene, you see a bit of, you know, voice-acted custom conversation between these two characters that brings them to support level C. <laughs> so, oh. A, there are there are like nine characters in my class. Each of them has a different support level with all the, the other eight. Every single one of them has leveled up and I haven't <laughs> watched any of these cutscenes. So I have literally 81 cutscenes to watch. <laughs> and the other thing is they aren't support level B until you watch the cutscene. <laughs> so all this time they're going no one, oh. in my entire 21 hours no one has ever leveled up with each other at all. <laughs> you were talking no last bonus. week very specifically about how yeah they're, they're, they're getting on with each <laughs> <Yeah>. other. <laughs> they're all standing around the university like where's Tom? I've been waiting to have this moment. But, you know, I've got when... this latent appeal with them, but well we can't act on no, it. So actually my relationships every time you hit support level with someone new it just happens. You just see the, the cutscene or you're, you get prompt that says hey do you want to go see Edelgard because you feel like you should and so I say yes and I watch that cutscene so that's that taught me it, this stuff comes to you you don't need to do anything <laughs> and then I learned there's 81 cutscenes for me to watch about this did you watch this them? Is, uh, yes oh my <laughs> bit goodness. by bit like over the course of several months of, of gameplay uh uh dipping into it occasionally to I pick the characters I care about first and then um uh slowly work my way to the ones I fucking hate <laughs> Uh, but this is mind-boggling because this is there are nine characters in my house their relationship with each other might be 81 or something in that region I haven't done the maths exactly but there are 40 characters in the whole game and actually everyone has a support level with everybody and each of those has multiple levels like B like C B potentially A in some cases potentially S in some cases so the number of combinations in that pool of people for all the different things I mean maybe like someone in my class can only have a support level C with someone else in their class. But I think there's still a cutscene for that. And even if it's only the individual classes, like my, my house is 81 cutscenes, another house will be another 81 cutscenes, another house will be another 81 yeah. cutscenes. And that's just for support level C. Support level B, another 81 for each one of those. How do they make this much game? Yeah. <laughs> How does this exist? Yeah. And it's, it's a, I mean, it's insane that they don't flag it up better and tell you that you, <laughs> you should watch these things or just put them in front of your face and just say, hey, you've got to watch this to get the stat boost, by the way. Uh, you can skip it. You can start watching it and skip it. Um, but and I have done with some. But actually, it's been for the most part, it's been refreshing. Like I didn't really want to watch uh, 
Ferdinand and Dorothea because I didn't trust the game to do that interaction well. Ferdinand is is my noble asshole. Every house has one noble asshole. There's the there's the womanizing noble asshole, and there's the um, Ferdinand is the in love with nobility noble asshole. Yeah. And then in the third house, uh, Golden Deer, they have a noble who is a womanizer on the basis of being a noble. Like he keeps trying to seduce people on the basis of like I'm a noble. Hey. Uh, <laughs> Date me. So Ferdinand is the least asshole-ish of the three, I think, but he's still a fucking asshole. And Dorothea <laughs> is also a bit flirty, and Dorothea um, is very flirty with everybody. And I was like, kind of wincing, oh, do I really want to watch them together? Not really, because she's going to flirt, and he's an asshole, and I just don't want to see it. <laughs> Thank God! <laughs> but I did watch it, and actually it turns out that one of Dorothea's traits is she is the one who calls everyone on their bullshit, and she's like a really good kind of psychoanalyst. Everyone she meets is like, you are doing this for this bullshit reason, and it's bullshit, so stop fucking doing it. <laughs> and all these support conversations, by the way, if you're imagining they are bonding exercises, about 90% of them are just, I have drilled to the core of your soul, I'm going <laughs> to rip you to shreds. The last support level C thing I had with Hubert, he threatened to kill me. <laughs> You've reached support level C. <laughs> so yeah I've been lapping, lapping up any um, uh, chat about that and I think it's because this is this is the thing I want to gossip about I don't watch a lot of re- reality shows yeah, and stuff, thinking it's like is, it's it's scratching Island, that itch for me yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but I can point those units around and have them kill things with bows which <laughs> 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 I just can't do with Love Island no how I <laughs> there was another thing that made me laugh uh, there's, there's two things um, to do with like there's these loyalty quests that it doesn't, again, does not flag up and does not tell you they're as important as they are. Um, and I finally did one of them. And it's like uh, one character, someone has proposed to them. And Dorothea, the aforementioned Dorothea, happens to know this asshole and says, he's an asshole. Don't accept that marriage proposal. And she's like, mm, but he does a good family. Uh, maybe we should just see if his intentions are, are right. And you say, okay, let's do this interesting, dramatic thing. Cut to your team in lava world. <laughs> just all these precipices of lava. The last thing I said was like, let's investigate this guy. Now we're just in lava world. We're being attacked by like 25 bandits. And then at some point during that mission, somebody mentions, oh, I think that guy is sending the bandits after us because the, he works for the guard, that suitor guy. <laughs> Why are we in lava world though? How did we get here? <laughs> I don't even remember leaving the monastery. <laughs> and then the other insane thing about that quest, um, uh, I don't think this is a... a uh, particular spoiler but you can skip it if you're really sensitive to spoilers uh one of the rewards is like one character so that that quest is between two characters who you know um one of whom is dorothea uh the other one gives dorothea a ring uh as a really like you know thank you so much for you basically saved my life i was going to end up with this jerk and you you really saved me and they come closer and it's quite a well written scene she gives her this ring and then dorothea says Thanks, but I actually think the professor should have this and decide what to do with it. <laughs> this game is the most player-worshipping thing I've ever played. They're just like, whatever you want to do, just anything, just do whatever you like. Every valuable thing in this world will be funneled to you. Every power will be given to you. Every privilege will be given to you. You are king and god and the best combat person who's ever lived. I did a mission, again, mild spoilers. Um, uh, I'll keep it very vague. But uh, some people were trying to steal an, an ancient relic and in a cutscene, when you sort of finally confront them, uh, in desperation as they're stealing it, you grab it off them and hit them with the sword and uh, kills them. And then you go back to a base and they're like, uh, oh, yeah, you just keep that. <laughs> no, you seem pretty good at it. You just have it. It's fine. That was the whole point of the mission was to stop them stealing it. But once you've got it, it's just, oh, yeah, actually, you just keep it. You're really good. You're awesome. You're amazing. 
Like it's player worshipping just to the point of absurdity. Like I just the uh, whole thing gets tissue paper thin as soon as I'm involved. And just that thing of like this deeply personal moment between two characters, someone gives someone else a ring and is like, turns to camera, would you like it? <laughs> Since you're the player, you should actually have it. And they didn't even need to do that because you control all these people anyway. So, so like, you've got the, the I have access like to the inventory. The if I thought ring. that ring, like it regenerates health, it does have a practical benefit. If I thought I need that on someone else, actually, I could just take it from my inventory. Like I already have the power to do that. But they actually make it part of the narrative that like I won't accept this personal gift. I'm going to give it to my fucking teacher who's also here for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't understand why you're playing it. <laughs> I like. I mean, I like Fire Emblem. I've played a lot of the previous ones, but. Yeah. It's all right. So if you really want, it's to know, weird. They've really doubled down on stuff that. Yeah, it's interesting. Like we were talking about Ubisoft being the iterative company. Like mm. Nintendo is also the the preeminent. Like they've been iterating on sort of you know on the things that they make and the ideas they have ever since you know Mario. It's totally fascinating the way they work. And I mean, it's not actually a specific. They they just published this game. It's um made by intelligent systems isn't it hmm. yeah. isn't it it always used to be I but mean, um, um, it's interesting the things that they've picked from the previous games and they have sounds like they've dialed it up so <laughs> far it's so weird apparently this one's less romance focused than the other ones which makes sense because it's like so Awakenings Awakenings <laughs> is basically the end game is you getting uh, getting the characters that you've kind of nurtured up to that point to, to create children like and you basically then have your uber army of of people of of characters that have the specific traits that you want and there's some oh, really wow. powerful ones that you just cannot get huh. in the first slate huh so they this, inherit traits from their parents yeah there's some sort of i can't remember exactly what the mechanic is because i never played that far because that was like 40 hours in or something yeah and I still wow. haven't got there, this, you know I've been assured at some point you stop being a teacher to a bunch of students uh, because there is some romance in it and that does not happen while you're a teacher to a bunch of students. <laughs> Thank um, God. But it's, it, mostly it's asking the question over and over again, like, who do you like? Which of the characters yeah. are you interested in? Which ones do you like spending time with? And so your question about, like, is Bernadette like an interesting character or is she a likable character? It's, I, I think for me, it's a bit of both. It's a little bit leaning towards it interesting, actually, because my initial impression was none of these characters are people I would want to hang out with and actually be friends with. Um, but I picked uh, Black Eagle because Edelgard, the head of that house, is interesting. She the, And that keeps being confirmed the more I talk to her. She's just... She's someone who's like, they all have this destiny to inherit this empire, and she is just fucking metal about it. She is like, I have already waded in this pool of blood and it expands <laughs> ever around me. She is like, the normal thing for like a, a young sheltered child to be about the, the thing they're going to inherit is naive, right? They're like, oh, it's going to be amazing. We're like, just can't wait to be king. <laughs> and she is just like, this is going to be hell. I'm fucking ready for it, and I will destroy my enemies. I'll do whatever it takes. She's so up for like the, the horror of it. And that's just really interesting to me. I haven't seen that before, so I'm like, okay, great. Signing <laughs> up. But um, I mainly joined that house because um, I was judging everyone by their looks. <laughs> anyone with like cool hair or something interesting about them, mm -hmm. I was up for. And Petra is the most interesting looking character of them all. She has cool hair. She has a facial tattoo that no one else has. That's kind of intriguing. That's uh, she's from a different like continent. And I didn't even know you like facial tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she also like her uniform was different for some reason like putting people in school uniform I can imagine the like 
whoever is lead character artist in that game, when they told them, hey, it's in a school, everyone's wearing the same uniform. (laughs) 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 There's 40 characters. I can't make them all different if they're all in the same uniform. So Petra is wearing a slightly different uniform. Um, And it was mostly, it was a completely superficial thing. Uh, But then she's kind of endearing because she's uh, struggling to speak the language. So she speaks in these like slightly um, weird phrases that sometimes really funny. Uh, and that's as good as a personality trait as you get that early on. <laughs> but then watching all of her loyalty things, you know, that huge menu of, lo- of support uh, conversations has been fascinating because there's a, like a conversation where she and the guy who's defined by sleep. <laughs> so, last yeah, I was, was asking how he, he is. going to ask how he is. He's just got the sleep thing still. That's still his own <laughs> <laughs> Well, except actually in this cutscene, there's a little bit of, of more depth to him. He walks in on Petra training. This is like, so what is Lindhart and Petra? What the fuck is that relationship like? And that's kind of the addictive thing about this is like, that with 81 combinations, what is, yeah, what does that Yeah, what do you like? do with the character, the sleep skates yeah. of ones that it's trained men? Uh, the more I say it, the more I think it's not 81. <laughs> I think it might be significantly <laughs> less than that. It might be like 40. Uh, but anyway, Lindhart and Petra, uh, he's the sleepy guy. He walks in on her. She's really... She's like a hunter by upbringing, I think, and she's really hardworking. And that's kind of what's endearing about her is is it's not that she's getting the language wrong, it's that she's working really hard to get it right whilst also excelling at combat and doing all all the other stuff everyone else has to do. And so she's training really hard. Lindhart walks in on her and starts critiquing her technique. Like, oh, you could do better with the spear. Like, as you jab, your left arm is is too low. This is kind of interesting because Lindhart is like an academic. He's like a mage dude. He's studying all the time or sleeping all the time. So it's weird that he has such specific opinions about spear technique. But that's kind of interesting. It adds a bit of, adds something to him. He's like, a, I guess he's like a sciencey guy. So he's like, he's seeing the sort of the physics of it and critiquing right. that. And she's like, I thought she was going to get pissed off at him because she's, you know, she's actually doing something and he's a lazy asshole. But she is just fascinated by, by oh, how do I do it? So what do you mean? What, my left arm's going too low. Can you show me how that, how that works? And he says, no, I didn't need to show you. It's just, it's, you know, it's lower. Just understand the physics of it. And he's basically a shitty teacher who also can't do what he's t- trying to tell her to do. But she doesn't get annoyed about being criticized. She's incredibly open to the criticism. She's excited about it. She's like desperate for the criticism. She's like, oh my God, fantastic. Tell me how, what I'm doing wrong. I'd love to learn more about how I'm doing this wrong. And... She's pissed off with him because he won't show her exactly how to do it and she can't understand his intellectual version of it. And so they leave kind of frustrated and pissed off. Support level C! <laughs> <laughs> but that that immediately is a really interesting and appealing character trait of someone who like absolutely welcomes criticism and all they want to know, I just need the practical benefit. I'm like, fantastic. If you can help me be, be better in, at fighting, I really want to hear it. But she's frustrated because he can't tell her in a way that, that means something to her. And that's just a really cool character. It makes me like really like her. Hmm. It's more nuanced than I thought it was. I thought it would kind of stay one-dimensional, as you were it, saying. Yeah, it really starts from the caricature, and then I think each one is going to work their way back. I think I've heard of at least two different characters who are kind of like extremely shy and timid, like Bernadetta. I, won't, uh, I don't know anything about why she's so scared or timid, but it's become clear she's not just like socially shy, ashamed, like scared of embarrassing herself. She literally thinks you're going to kill her. (laughs) Each, because now I've watched like nine cutscenes of her interacting with everybody. They all start with like her being surprised by them or something. And she's just literally, I can't believe I'm going to die right now. (laughs) I'm I'm so sorry for whatever I did to offend you. Please don't kill me. (laughs) It's kind of dark. Like it's kind of played in very broad strokes, but it's clear like she actually fears dying at all times. (laughs) It's not like just a cute little social affectation. 
Alex, you've been playing something. <laughs> I've been to, well, weirdly enough, it's all links with quite a lot of what we talked about so far. Like, I've been playing uh, the, a shortest, short, a short hike. The shortest, <laughs> the shortest hike. hike. <laughs> a short hike. The um, shortest hike is where you already are. <laughs> uh, it's really lovely. It is a short game. But, like, it's interesting because we... I mean, it's, it's a very Nintendo-like game. Yeah, this game right. has been massively inspired by Animal Crossing's specifically you are a little yeah. birdie guy birdie woman who 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 has the big head and the very super simple kind of um uh, textured sort of features and you're walking around a, um an island which is viewed from above and across a little bit very much like uh animal crossing everything is very very colorful and everything is is purposefully uh pixelated so it's sort of it's gone all kind of well Let's say N64. So what the, what, what's the, the first Animal Crossing game on N64? Animal, animal something, I can't remember what it's called. Yes, it had a funny... Because it was at that time it was like kind of a, still an obscure title to the yeah, West. Yeah, I don't think it yeah. came over here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so, so it does exist then, so it's fine. Because um, because the, the resolution is too low, I would say, for GameCube. Uh, <laughs> um, and in this game, uh, you are on holiday with staying... Uh, with your uh, ranger aunt um, you, on an island. Do you start talking to your dad? No. No, she's your Aunt May. Uh, so I know the aunt in, in the thing, but like... Oh, oh right to been... the very start with the kind of the, just the, the yeah. text dialogue. Maybe. But that's... I was listening to a video game Top Dog talking about this game and they're oh. talking about your dad and how you talk to him. And I don't remember ever meeting my dad. So I'm like... <laughs> that must be... If right, I did yeah. meet my dad, I did not know he was my dad. Because the cutscene at the start is in the car, isn't it? But you play specifically only on the island. Um, and the premise of the game is simply that there's no uh, phone signal. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to use your phone, you have to go to the top of the mountain where there is a phone signal. I want to jump in and say that uh, we shouldn't say what that phone call is. Oh, yeah, yeah, Because yeah. they mentioned it on the Video Games Hot Dog podcast. Oh, I was did like, they? No! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was finding that out was such a good moment for me. Yeah. No, it's... it's uh, and you... And you, you know, your character at the star is a bit indolent, like has lost a sort of a sense of wanting to do things, mm-hmm. lost energy, can't see the point of things, but is on this amazing island, as it turns out. Um, uh, the rest of the game is free for you to, con- to, to explore in the way you want. Um, and that is powered by really lovely movement feel. So ah. you, you run around nicely enough, but you can jump and then you can glide because you're a bird. Um, but not a bird that is any good because, <laughs> because you can't flap at the start of the game. You're a bad bird. <laughs> you're yeah. a bad bird. Uh, but the glide is nice and sort of it, you kind of think, oh, it's fine, it's fine. Uh, but then soon along, uh, soon, soon on, soon on? Early on? Early on. You'll, uh, everyone will tell you about the golden feathers. And when you collect a golden feather, it buys you a flap. One <laughs> flap. Per golden feather. Uh, and this flap will either, you know, if you're gliding, um, get you slightly higher, or it will allow you kind of to flap up a cliffside for one flap. You can climb as well. That is the climb. Scale, yeah. It's a flappy climb. Hmm. Like birds do, <laughs> maybe. Because <laughs> they tell you climbing is more efficient than flapping, right? Um, yes, you probably can get more height. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um uh, All birds know this. That's why you see so many birds scaling cliff faces. 
Um, but you, how do you? I actually, I can't even remember what the animation looks like. Are you gripping with your wings? I never knew. <laughs> Weird, I think it's one of the things about it. Actually, this is would be a, the mildest criticism mm-hmm. is that you it's so pixelated and the view is so far out. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to know. Yeah, like it can also be it's a little frustrating the start when you don't have much latitude for flapping. Yeah, if you're trying to get across from you know to a to a kind of like a thing you can't get up yet, but you can glide from a, a higher point nearby, it's really hard to judge the distance. And yeah. I've fed off things over and over again that is soon lost that that you soon sort of forget that once you are able to flap more because you get yeah. you know you just don't care um and you can sort of skip your way up stuff um and it becomes like a collectathon game to an extent like early on there's a character that says oh can you collect 15 um shells for me and that's actually nice because exploration around the seashore is pleasurable and like there's nothing that's it does gate stuff off to you simply because you can't get up there because it's high. So you you just can't get up there. But yeah. most of the island is actually completely accessible and you can actually just go the other way. Like you, the path takes you uh, clockwise round to the left and then up round sort of thing. Um, but you can totally go the other way completely and you'll yeah, see totally I did that. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> of course you don't. Two to four. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you want me to go? I'll swim around the island and go to the right. And, and it, it, it let me do that. Sorry, and the game like, totally doesn't care. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And you can feel like and it, the scale of it is such that you feel lost. Like you feel, oh mm. God, I've really gone into the unknown now. And oh my God, look, there's a great big factory building and mm. now I'm in a, in a kind of an autumnal forest. And now, but... You then find things that you're meant to find or you see landmarks that you know so far. And I don't have a mental map of this place yet. No, I don't. Somehow managed to find this amazing sweet spot between like size and variety and smallness so that you can just come across things that, that kind of bound, bind you back to familiarity. And like, I, like I, it's a remarkable. And what's also remarkable is that it has like, like sort of sharp, like quite precipitous hills and forests, which occlude your view because there are trees there and they're all like buildings and things. And somehow you don't don't lose sight of yourself. Like there's a sort of, there's a complexity of, of kind of t- like terrain that doesn't get in the way of your enjoyment of going across it. Did you variety. ever have any trouble with the camera? I think you can, yeah. So the camera... The camera slightly could do a bit more polish, really. But the camera yeah. kind of will follow where you are, and like, and but sometimes doesn't quite keep up. It's got. It feels like it's got some predefined angles, right? Yeah. You go to this area, and the angle changes. And if you're already moving, now that what the button you're pressing is, or the, the stick direction you're pressing now has yeah. a different meaning. Yeah, um, that's true. I had I had a a big frustration with that very early on before I had a single feather, and I, possibly because I went a weird way, and I, I ended up scaling. A mountain. I got to a bit, a bit where I now know I could not have gone any further because of the 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 ledge I had to climb. I didn't have any climbing yet, but the camera wouldn't show me where I was. I was behind a thing, and oh, yeah. in retrospect, I know that probably one of the reasons is that you can't go that way anyway at that point. But at the time, I'm like, I could if you'd show me where I fucking am. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and so it was really annoying. It doesn't even do a kind of a silhouette thing, which some games do. Anyway. Yeah, I it gives you like a microscopic amount of control over the camera. You can like. Yeah, because you've got to, like, three it. degrees, left <laughs> <Yeah>. and right. <laughs> it feels like, I don't know what problem that was there to solve, like, if there was some... I've never used it. Like, I saw, oh, that's useful, and then, like, it's, oh, no. <laughs> that's a feature that would be useful in an isometric game. Yeah. In a very isometric game, sometimes things line up exactly, like, pixel right. exactly, so one thing completely obscures the other thing, and if you could move the camera just two degrees, you'd be able to see, oh, okay, that's that's two different things. 
uh, in this game, it doesn't seem that useful. And it's it's a frustrating, like, because it teases, oh, you, yeah, you can move the camera, but only this tiny amount. Yeah, I, I, I thought, I, it, again, like, I felt there was going to be an issue more at the start and the, the yeah. end. Because at the end, I was moving so quickly and yeah. sort of bouncing around and flapping yeah, and sliding. The, and there's a point where you start to feel like master of this, really of this place and you can just um, fly around freely. I was reminded of it because I was listening to a video game hot dog talking about this and Zach, uh, my friend Zach, absolutely hated it. Really? <laughs> really? And yeah, I was shocked too. And I was like, what? How could you hate this game of all things? And actually, almost everything you mentioned was a, a frustration I did have. Like I'd forgotten about that camera problem by the end of it because it was only really early on he only played for like 15 minutes he said and and he kind of swam away from the island and the camera kept turning around in a way that now he doesn't know which way is back to the island and which way is to the island which is fair i'm sure like the yeah, the camera was somewhat annoying to me come on you swam on. away from the island yeah, yeah. <laughs> come on own your own your ambition <laughs> i remember this is an aside but i remember um uh uh proteus developer yeah, Ed. Ed, Ed Key. Key. God, sorry, Ed. Um, uh, telling me that he had, I think it was like a friend's daughter played Proteus. And Proteus, you start in the sea right off the shoreline and this this beautiful kind of low uh, colour island. You swim towards it and there's this amazing reactive soundscape where every, every object in the world is producing a different kind of rhythm and tone. And as you move around, you create dynamic music. And his friend's daughter started... Turned around 180 and started. <laughs> so, but the island's back there. And she said, yeah, I thought I could find a better island. <laughs> and that's what seeing someone play your game is like. <laughs> Spend years making this beautiful wonderland and they turn around immediately. Maybe there's a better one over here. <laughs> there, is, there is something about it which uh, I think, I think, I think that I, I'm going to put this down to just being old and fucking grumpy. But there, <laughs> The dialogue, I find... Oh, no, little, I love the dialogue. I mean, it, <laughs> I like what the dialogue is trying to do, but there's a, it fits into a modern text-style breeziness, mm, which I'm getting really fucking tired of. Oh, that's and I don't think this is well badly done in and of itself. It's just fitting into a category which I'm kind of... as, as a, I'm getting was, really fucking tired of. There was only one bit that, that felt kind of like of its time Mimi. Uh, that's a horrible word, but I like it. Um, <laughs> it. Uh, but I liked it, which was the guy who is building sandcastles with right. a massive spade, like a full-size spade. <laughs> and as it happened, I already had a sandcastle spade on me. Uh, and when you talk to him, uh, you're like, wow, that's, that's kind of a big spade you're making those castles with. And he's like, yeah, that's how you make sandcastles. Like, well, you can get like smaller spades that, that you know, are designed for sandcastles. And he said, all right, sounds fake. <laughs> <laughs> and that, like, sounds fake is, is, you know, of its time, I feel like. But yeah. it did make me laugh. Also. Yeah, this the kind of, yeah, the context is good. Did you play Night in the Woods, Alex? I did. And what was your reaction to the Yeah, Yeah, um, I think that was kind of one of the, like, early, or at least the sort of, mm. and therefore, I felt, I felt definitely this wasn't, this is not my generation. So it's kind of like almost a documentary for me. Like, oh, <laughs> this is what, how the youth are. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so no, I mean, <laughs> no, it, 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 it would have done, but I think it's actually well, really well written mm. and kind of the characters kind of managed to pop out from the style. Right. right. And in this game, the characters are such caricatures mm. and that's fine because you're playing a fucking 
Animal Crossing, yeah, where yeah. this character is there to provide you with a spade, you know. So <laughs> yeah, so like you know that's fine, and you know so so my criticism is is really isn't, but it, I am interested in like, is this a style we're going to be doing for a while? Because <laughs> because it does what have is, you... it does have a really limited range. Like mm. you know, I think Night in the Woods demonstrated that you can definitely do sadness and kind of anguish and you, you know it has it does have an emotional range but i think that was because the caricature characters were good and the right, setting right. like particularly with that game the setting for me was just fascinating because it was a document of a certain place in america as yeah. it is now and like that's fucking good and 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 doing something more than let's make it fun you know and and again, this isn't really a criticism of um, a short hike because because it is a fun game and it's a really short game, like you know, on purpose, and you never want anything to last too long. Um, but yeah, I I kind of I hope it's success, and it's kind of you know the the wonderful things about it don't kind of just make everyone think like. That's the style to use for every right. fucking thing from now on. <laughs> Can you say any more about what this style is? Like, what is the objectional part of it? It's it's the lower cap, lower cap sentence starts <laughs> and lack of full stops. <laughs> oh, okay. well, that's fixable. <laughs> so it's no, but it's it's a it's a breeziness that yeah, that's the, like. and and where everything is. Uh, Oh God! I'm trying to put a finger on it. There's a there's a breeziness with with too much meaning loaded on slight things. Like mm. so, you know, like with the frog and you saying, oh, you know, uh, that's fake. And like that is funny. That is funny. But like there are other examples of that where it's some throwaway line and it's like. Hey, gag and it's like hey it's too it's too fucking come on like give people a bit more space like let them i don't know mm. use punctuation <laughs> it's it, 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 the reason i ask is because it, i i've seen so i've heard reactions similar reactions before and i i have struggled to like to put my finger on it because like i knew that those feelings were connected between those two games when i that was why i asked yeah, you that yeah, question and yeah. you, i, 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 I couldn't exactly, like yeah. figure out like what it is but there is something there there's like, a there's a there's a very i think it's a very um self-conscious right. style i think that's what it right. is like um i think that it comes out of text speak like mm-hmm. and and the way that that has evolved over the past 15 years or whatever and and therefore there's a because because it because it i think it's about presentation of self mm. but through a medium where you can construct every fucking like where every space means something right. and i think there's a for me it means that there's nothing ever guileless in anything any you know in the style that as it's kind of comes across to me because you know that it's all been studied right. and learned mm. from other places and that's like the very aesthetic that it comes from and it's funny because it's but that's it's very... cool. That's fine. It's just that I think that it has actually quite a narrow emotional range. Mm. It's really interesting because Twitter is such like a, a sort of <laughs> a hotbed for like inventing formats for tweets, right? I, yeah, I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll yeah, stop yeah. saying meme because it's not really what I mean, but like, yeah. uh, and some of them feel like they're going to be gone tomorrow, and some of them feel to me like they're worth 
sticking with. And this so could, this could be the next, yeah. Yeah, there's next. like um uh what's so the one where it's like uh nobody colon and then no <laughs> yeah, okay. no text yeah. and then something and the like the, the gist of it is whatever you put after that 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 is doing something really extra and extreme, uh you're trying to say like Nobody fucking asked this. Like you're just coming out of nowhere. It's very spontaneous, and it's 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 a bit much. Uh, but it's a really specific format because that that evolved from another format of tweet that was like, uh, you know, uh, stranger, hello, and then me. Oh, by the way, I've been thinking about the the ramifications of what Dorothea is scared of in Fire Emblem or whatever. It was like that was a, a former tweet like a year ago, and now it's nobody blank, and then mm-hmm. the other thing. Uh, like we've skipped the first line of that because actually it's all about the second line like <laughs> let's evolve that feels like it's going to go away in about a month's time yeah, <laughs> like it yeah, yeah. feels really transient whereas one I really really like is the checks clipboard <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that always works for me and like that specific version of it I don't know if that's going to stick around but just that stage directions thing <laughs> is really good and if someone had like if that had never been done before and somebody said hey I'm thinking of tweeting this and I'm going to put this stage direction thing like I like that, but I'm not sure people are going to get it. I don't think people read stage directions and picture them in their head. Turns out they do, and it's great. (laughs) There's all kinds of things you can do with that. But I think, yeah, and I think that one of the the difficulties when you kind of translate that kind of approach to games is that on Twitter and in a text, like you're dealing with a real person and you kind of, you know, this kind of goes back to what we're talking about with AI. We know, Mm. like, this is Tom, like, one... It, it tickles me that I know that he loves the Kitex clipboard. <laughs> but also, you know, this is the joke he's doing and this is where he comes from with it and blah, blah, blah. Um, with a game, like most game characters are necessarily paper thin. And like, mm. and therefore, when you use like a, such a sort of um, formal, uh, such a formal style, uh, you know, but not backed up by like a full-blooded character, like you sort of go... Like it yeah. just falls off you, you know? maybe that's why it works in Night in the Woods because you do feel a massive sense of human weight yeah. behind the story yeah. Like, yeah. 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 actually there's a very common tweet joke format that <laughs> I have got to assume pisses you off Mike <laughs> if you see oh it. yes I, I know what's you know where I'm heading with this mm. which is I trained a machine learning ah. on 50,000 hours of Batman movies and then asked it to make a script and here it is never trained it's I forced a bot I forced to yes sir right. yeah yeah I mean, and we've picked out like every single word um, and Keaton Patty in particular their entire career is these tweets oh yeah um, yeah and like sometimes I think it works when it is very obvious. Like everyone who reads the tweet understands a joke, but other yeah. times, like people really think they've done. Oh that. yeah, no, like, I, th- I would say that most of the time yeah. people think it's real. Even yeah. there was a period where people were doing this and they were lying. They were like <laughs> literally trying to trick you into thinking they had done yeah. this, and they were lying. They'd make, they'd written the script. It was clear if you know any about if you've read any of these kind of Markov chain generated things, you know what the real ones sound like. And when it's too human, you kind of oh, hang on, you wrote this, and they were they were phrasing the tweets as if. They, re- they really had trained a bot. Now the tweet format is is intentionally, I think, implausible. Like I saw one that was like 10,000 hours of Batman movies. <laughs> Stop thinking about it a second. Wait, there aren't 10,000 hours of Batman movies. <laughs> so the person is not lying. It is a joke. The joke is encoded in there. But every time I see one, I think a bunch of people are going to think Mm. This is really what yeah, how it works. Yeah, and yeah if you get click really on the replies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know, maybe it's unfair to you know tell off someone for making a good good intention joke, but 
boy, if there isn't enough shit to wade through already, you know, in terms yeah. of AI misinformation, God, alive. Um, and it's not, I mean, there's something Marsh said was like, if it's only funny in this format, if it's something that would be funny anyway, right? If you just, because we don't believe it's a robot. So it only works if we believe, if it's funny, even if you know a human is saying it. Actually, it ties back to what we were saying earlier about like, yeah. heat, there are a bunch of heating names that are only funny if an AI generated them. Mm. If I generated them, it's not funny. And so if these scripts are relying on you believing the AI generated them to be funny, yeah. then that's a lie and it's bad. If they don't need the AI conceit to be funny, then why are you even saying it? Why not just say it? And like, you know, there's this thing of like, if you have to explain a joke, it's like taking apart a cat to see how it works, you know, and you don't learn anything and the cat dies. Um, and I understand that that's what I'm doing here as well. But like often these these jokes actually like, it, it isn't really like a very good parody of what an AI would yeah. do, like in many ways. And it's interesting to like look at what this person thought would be a good yeah. parody. Because they're actually like, if an AI was capable of doing this, often it's like a massive conceptual invention, like building on the concept of a Friends episode <laughs> in an unusual way. In reality, like the way AI would mishmash these together would be way more naive and way more abstract. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't like parse properly most of the time. Yeah. You know? um, and if you're actually looking for someone who does do this for real on a regular basis, uh, I recommend looking up Janelle Shane, oh. uh, who, who really does fun stuff. Um, they, they actually donated uh, a bunch of stuff to our Proc Jam Kickstarter. It's the, the procedural generation jam. Um, and it was a list of Dungeons and Dragons spells for the Pymancer class, uh, because <laughs> been, promising. the spells have been mixed up with like names of pies and recipes for pies. And so um, all of the spells were like, you know, zone of rhubarb crumble kind of thing. Yeah, but they were like better than that. Um, and Janelle like uh, that, has that a book coming good. out, I think, uh, yeah. about just all of these things. Like Because uh, I can imagine that turning like a concrete surface into the into the crispy <laughs> topping of a crumble, but then the beneath it is the soft rhubarb, right. which is like blazing hot. So as you sink into it, it starts to like, burn damage. <laughs> yeah, so there are people doing it for real. They're, they're good. They are good. They're very, very fun. Um, yeah. Should we do some questions? What, from questions? Uh, if that's where we find them, then then that is how we will do it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tom. <laughs> Let us go together. Look, I, I was distracted by reading all these questions. Uh, Matt writes, Hello, watching a stream of the games created in the Game Makers Toolkit Game Jam this week, I was struck, as I always am, with the insane quality of some of the games which were made in only, 20, only 48 hours. However, the one constant theme in any game design post-mortem is that game development takes a very long time, uh, and if you assume a game take, will take a year, there's a good chance it will actually take three. I have a name for this contradiction, the Game Jam Paradox, but I truthfully can't really explain it. Uh, what are your thoughts on why so much can be achieved in one weekend, but why development of even seemingly simple games can take many years? Uh, thanks for your insight in the great pod, Matt. <laughs> so the, the first answer to this is that actually, at least when I used to enter Game Jams, I actually would finish the game like 18 hours in and the rest was like you know <laughs> polishing it or, or, or things like that so you know, even there it's still the case that you you plan to make the game in a shorter window right i don't know if you mm. ever dabbled in this kind of focused short form creation you know even if it's not games yeah you John, didn't you? yeah i actually um i did two before gunpoint came out so i already released two games when gunpoint came out because um the first one was just Ludum Dare, and I, it, I was really glad I did it. I think it might have been like one year into Gunpoint's development, and it was a great lesson in, hey, if you want to finish something, you need to cut half of what you have planned <laughs> right now. <laughs> cut half of it. <laughs> um, and it's the fact, well, A, you have a really hard deadline, 
B, you're not as invested in this thing. It's not your dream project. It's not the thing that you've invested years of your life into. So there's like, there's no sunk cost fallacy. You've only sunk one day into it. And that's why it's good for game jams to not announce the theme until it actually starts because you can't have prepped it. It can't be too much of an investment. You need it to be kind of breezy and just like, mm. oh, well, if I have to cut half the features on this, I have to cut half the features because I've got to get it done. Getting it done is more important than it being good right, <laughs> in this exactly. case, yeah. which is a really valuable lesson in game development. It, yeah. Like, you know, um, uh, what's the phrase? The perfect is the enemy of the good or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, or is it perfect is the enemy of the finished? <laughs> uh, finished is better than... That's also true. <laughs> All these things are true. Um, and so it's it's just a crash course in, hey, if you don't want to hit a deadline, here's what it actually takes. After day one, look at what you fucking have. Realize it's nothing like what you need to have. Yeah. And scrap half of your plan and then focus on actually finishing the things you do have. Um, and it's, yeah, real game development or uh, what a lot of indies are doing is a multi-year thing with no fixed deadline, meet myself included, uh, where you can always justify, I need to invest in this feature and all this thing. You know, this feature isn't done yet, so I can't move on. You know, you move on when you finish the thing. And in the game jam, it's like, you move on because it's fucking 2 (laughs) a.m. You need to either sleep or get the next thing done. There was a period where I I was entering game jams quite regularly, and I I kind of got quite good at it, I think. Not that I was winning them, but, you know, I, I had a good process. But... That process is that in your mind, you have like a a toolbox of mechanics that you can implement quickly Mm. and that you know will work. And what you do is you don't design the game that you want. You design the game that you can make out of those pieces. (laughs) So when you start to make a game over the course of three years, you're designing the game that you want and you're trying to achieve this long-term plan. Whereas a game jam is really about like, what Lego bricks do I have and what shape can I make with them? Mm. And it's not going to be the exact shape I wanted when I started out, but it's going to be as close as I can get. Um, And if a shape doesn't fit, you know. You don't put it in the game. Yeah. So, like we mentioned earlier on, uh, Bye You coming out of a game jam. And, and I find it fascinating for the fact that, you know, there's so much of Baba Is You in that game jam game. You know, almost, it's, you know, if you have them both on the screen at the same time, you, you probably wouldn't be able to guess which is which. You know, it's hmm. that close. But at that point, he didn't know whether it was going to be a puzzle game <laughs> or a sandbox game like yeah, and so yeah. like the fundamental despite everything all the building blocks being there more or less like had the fundamental philosophies of the game had not been set and it's like that's, that's kind of that seems to that's the other thing to say is that there are so many successful games that started as a game jam game and that's not a coincidence that's you know if you start in a super focused way and you're not super invested and you'll roll with what you can do and try and get something done within time often you end up with something that shows real potential. People are playing it and liking it and giving you encouragement and you're super motivated to carry on with it and you end up making something really, really good. Yeah, um, yeah to, to get something finished, you do at least have to start. Yeah, right. Yeah, and it's it's uh, more so than any other kind of development, you have something to show after two days. <laughs> like, even if you just treat it as like, I want to make uh, this much bigger project, but let's see if I can do some version of it in two days. That's probably the best kickstart you can give to the longer development is just to have something that you can show to other people um and after that period and and prove that it works i'd also say this is not a requirement for game jams um but i really believe in making a video of what you made because when you make something a short period of time there's a good chance you'll make something great um 
but there's a very low chance you'll be able to persuade anyone to play it because they're <laughs> like, especially in game jams, like it's great that that spurred you to do it and it's a good thing to do, but you are competing with like 300 other games. Anyone who is mm-hmm. who is potentially going to play your game is looking at 300 other things at once. Right. The, the amount of time you can invest in playing or the, the number of games you, you can decide to play from a game jam is obviously a tiny percentage of what is out there. So make a video because everyone can watch a video. Like it's if they uh, if they follow you on Twitter or if they just the, it pops up in their feed in any capacity and the video you know uh, is of any interest at all, it's easy to watch that. Whereas downloading and playing a game is a huge investment that most people won't take. And one small footnote also is that some of it is going to be on Matt's part as well. So when we watch these game jam games, our minds are like smoothing over all of the edges that if this was a, a commercial game that someone was if you were seeing yeah. this on steam right now you'd be thinking what is what is going on here but your mind is like smoothing off those rough edges because it's a game jam game you know so yeah, yeah. people's perceptions yeah. affect things yeah, as well. yeah expectations as well yeah, yeah. kind of like what you said about like when you're angela you know entered the game jam people were sort of more charitable about it because right. they knew the context of what how it was created absolutely yeah. uh Phoenix writes, Greetings, mouse and keyboard. I find that occasionally I will enjoy a game more for its soundtrack than the game itself, with the OST finding its way to my playlists and the game to the bottom of my library. Some of these games include Starcraft Brood War, Risk of Rain, Frozen Synapse, and, brackets, shamefully with no disrespect to suspicious violence, Heat Signature. <laughs> Is this an experience only I have had? Uh, do you feel the same way about, get, uh, about some games? And if so, what are they? Much love and pod judiciously, Phoenix. Yeah, I... Uh... I'm absolutely 100% behind this. I think Risk of Rain is one of the best soundtracks, I think, for a game ever. Um, but it was so strong, in fact, that I bought the Deadbolt soundtrack. That was the the next game from the, from oh, the yeah. same devs. I bought it before I'd played Deadbolt, and like several months before. Um, and I listened to it so much that when I played Deadbolt, it was extremely jarring to hear. Like <laughs> It was sort of, you know, booting up an indie game and just finding, like I don't know, some latest pop track was just soundtracking this. This song that you've heard for the last three months. Um, so yeah, I'm mean, definitely down with Risk of Rain there. Um, favorite soundtracks? Anyone else? Mirror's Edge. Hmm. Uh, but I also love the game. But when I finished the game, I think I kind of stopped with it, and I kept listening to the hmm. the main theme for Mirror's Edge for years afterwards. Well, I don't understand about Civilization is why they just don't do the the, the oh profess- god, yeah, fucking Baba Yeti, <laughs> just over and over and over again. So much better than the entire game. Hundred hours. <laughs> Four-hour extended YouTube cuts on loop. <laughs> oh, that exists for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't need to check. <laughs> what about, does nostalgia play a part here? So I still listen to the Final Fantasy soundtracks, but that's partly because they remind me of being a teenager. Right. Uh, is that is that a fact? I mean, is that like Mirror's Edge? Is Mirror's Edge like a nostalgia for playing Mirror's Edge? Well, weirdly, what, throwing his controls against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a great percussion. <laughs> The, the track that I really love from it is the one that was used in the first trailer for it. So it, it is also in the game, but it's um, uh, that first trailer was also kind of a special uh, moment. You know, it captures almost everything that I love about the game and mm-hmm. it's exciting about the game. And it was kind of like, for me, it like encapsulates and is strongly associated with the dream of what that game is. You know, mm-hmm. as I've acknowledged many times, it has its flaws and I have my specializations with it. But it's it's the ideal of, of that world and the aesthetic that they came up with for it and just how kind of um, gorgeous the whole thing is. Uh, that combined with this perfect music for it, uh, sort of, it, that was just like a perfect moment in time, this beautiful dream. And the game itself is sufficiently close to that that I loved it and it stuck in my memory as one of my all-time favourites. Um, 
despite many mechanical problems. Uh, and so, in, if anything, like the soundtrack reminds me more of the dream I had of this game than it does of the actuality of playing it. I feel like that about Skyrim's main theme. I, I feel, hmm. I remember how oh, yeah. I felt installing like Skyrim and beginning it when I hear that soundtrack, like the promise of, of exploring yeah, the this series. Yeah, uh, like yeah. yeah, Oblivion for me, though. Yeah, so yeah. like a graph of the last three Elder Scrolls games of how much I love the soundtrack and how much I love the game is like <laughs> yeah. completely, it's a big X. <laughs> like, the Morrowind music is, is absolutely sublime and with each iteration they've made it more actiony and more up tempo right. and I've liked it less and less and more tuneful games... as well it means you kind of get really tired of it right yeah the games have just got better I think I love Morrowind and there is I absolutely agree with the people who, who uh, say that Morrowind has a unique strangeness that the other ones don't it does and that is a thing that I love about it but just to play like <laughs> I'm a modern conveniences kind of person and <laughs> it doesn't have those <laughs> and just I also just think like walk in a direction in Morrowind and see what you find. And it's a weird and, and interesting world, but there isn't that much in it. And then in Oblivion, there's a bit more, but it's all kind of a bit formulaic and falls into categories. And then Skyrim is, it has the Fallout 3 thing of, there's just so much here, just every little nook and cranny has something in it that's special and interesting. Yeah. I was thinking about some of the the soundtracks that kind of, that I remember, and not many of them are very good. <laughs> it's like the one that just suddenly popped into my head was some um, System Shock one, which is mm. which is sometimes completely unlistenable, like which is noise, <laughs> like noise. So it's it's got this sort of very bleepy kind of like computery, and it even has like a voice going computer or something. Like this. <laughs> the horror of Citadel Station. Computers. Remember computers. And it's really kind of character, like it's very good at scene setting, but like there are some themes in it in some of the areas which are like fucking unlistenable, like <laughs> proper fucking just like screaming kind of uh, bleeps. Yeah. <laughs> Oh god, uh, Transistor. It doesn't really apply because I love the game as well, uh, but oh my god, the soundtrack for that is perfect. Yeah. And and does kind... Oh, I think, again, same as Mirror's Edge, it's the aesthetic that, that maybe surpasses the game. Both games I like mechanically, both games have problems mechanically, and in both cases, I love, love, love the music, but I think only when paired with the aesthetic, I need the visuals as well. Like it's, it's that place, it's that world that I'm mm. just absolutely in love with. Mm. And there's probably, I can't really think of any case where it's just the music I like. I only like music if it pairs with what I'm seeing on screen. Yeah. And that can be totally divorced from the mechanics. The mechanics can be bad, but uh, I can't think of a case where the music's wonderful, but the game looks bad. Because <laughs> I, yeah, I don't really live, ever listen to, to music uh, soundtracks at all either i don't really listen to film ones either they always film seem a little bit kind of missing the sort of yeah. component especially like you know the incidental score where it's like one track <laughs> yeah. will be sort of suspense yeah. and yeah. Track <laughs> be sadness yeah. and mega drama i was like what the fuck am i supposed to feel here <laughs> i'm just working but is it like i but i think i have a different ratio because uh, i've got to get the requisite uh, mention of my son in who does listen to music trend soundtracks but yeah. i think for him it's mostly because like it's a way for him to play the game when he's not playing the game. Yeah, right. And it's sort of like, it's just, he's obsessed, like I was talking about last week, with Splunky still. <laughs> and so he just listens to Splunky soundtrack, which That's I don't think I want. It's a good, like, it's a good, it's a good soundtrack. I've, just, I've heard so many hours of it now that I really, <laughs> I, pr I think I have it on mute for when. <laughs> 
But that's, that's one I haven't listened to much because it's broken up into like 48 tracks, right? And they're all like yeah. 16 to 36 seconds long oh, or something really? because right. it's sort of like remixed dynamically, yeah, huh. um, which is fascinating. Like, yeah, I have yeah, it on yeah, my yeah. computer, but I don't listen to it much for... That's really interesting. So I don't know what he's like listening to it. then, yeah, because he must be listening to it. He probably is some... listening to it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It does make sense. It's just a little bit different. <laughs> they Watching like a Minecraft video recently reminded me of the gentle piano music oh, that kicking yes. in every now and then. Yeah. And so I, I looked it up and found a, a playlist of just the Minecraft music. And I'm pretty that's, sure. That's a really nice relaxing work soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. The, the the choice of those tracks, I th- just, I think that it's been really important for Minecraft, sort mm. of the setting and atmosphere and a set of kind of, you know, for such is a it? wide kind of huge player base and that music, which is actually pretty fucking out there for game music you know yeah. we do quite sort of um and it's introduced like a, a way of using using music in games to like fucking hundreds of millions of people it's amazing does it like play a certain track at dawn and one at dusk and then some other no it's much i think i don't there must, there must be rules about it but as far as i know it's fairly to sort of fades in and out like certainly you don't you know how when when games do do the morning wake up song and it's like you you fucking know it after about hour 10 (laughs) in in minecraft it does sometimes you can i've you know you you, it just sort of oh it started playing the music i don't know when that started yeah i know that it's been there and it's set at this melancholy atmosphere like I'm on my own in the bottom yeah. of the mind thing. And it's like, oh, it's so good. The use of silence is almost as impressive yeah. as the and use of And then it yeah. goes quiet yeah. for like, you know, who That's, knows how long. Like, yeah. I think just, the reason yeah. I thought it played at dawn is that my lasting memory of it was um, when I was doing my Minecraft diary for PC Gamer. Mm. And I'd uh, my mission was like, I went to hell, walked sort of for an hour or something, made another portal, came back, and space in hell is eight times compressed yeah, to yeah. real life. So I'm eight times further away than I was mm. before and then tried to trek back to where I came from. And there was a, a time when I'd some kind of fire had started in a, a forest. Might have been me. Okay. <laughs> who knows? Who can say who was responsible for this fire? A player was there. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> but I'd, I'd emerged from my little tunnel that I created for safety to see like the forest before me just burning as the sun came up and this gentle piano music came. And it was this sublime <laughs> moment of like, it was serene and beautiful, even though it was kind of like, whoops, gonna burn this part of the world down. <laughs> Um, uh, this is reminding me uh, so like associating you're saying like over associating the, the music with the queue is it's kind of a bad thing uh, every review I've ever read of the Outer Wilds specifically mentions the track that plays just before the world right. ends yeah because there's like mm. the, the solar system ends uh, after 22 minutes and uh, there's a piece of music that apparently he always plays right before that i've never noticed this oh, really? i've completed the game i've done everything there is to do i've played it for like 20 hours i've never noticed that there's a really? particular piece of music and it's, it's, I'm for sure me it's really important because it starts to like it starts it's telling you something it's important gameplay information it's a couple after of the, minutes before after like the get first prepared. or maybe second time it happens you're supposed to know this like this is telling you something <laughs> i have no idea i'm just there must be something about the way my brain forms associations that it can't do it in that order it can't be like music and then the thing happens. If the thing happened and then some music played afterwards, I would have been like, oh yeah, that's the end of the world music. But like, because it's before, at the time it starts playing, I don't know the world's going to end. I have no idea. <laughs> then the world ends a little while later. I'm like, oh, that was surprising. <laughs> so I'm an idiot, basically. Uh, but the Outer Wilds soundtrack is amazing yeah, as well. Yeah. And it's it's not, 
this is not one where it surpasses the game. Yeah. It needs the game. It works yeah, with yeah. the game. And it's the whole game has this feeling of a thing ending, which is completely appropriate because the solar system we're in is ending uh, all the time. And even when you loop back, it's there's something beautiful about it where it's just the whole thing. There's this one refrain that just goes through the whole thing. It's in the theme tune. It's every single astronaut who you find is playing a different mm-hmm. instrument. They're all playing the same tune. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes together again later on in the game and it's also reused and reinterpreted in a lot of different ways um and so the soundtrack by itself is you know kind of repetitive because it's like (laughs) hey yeah we just heard this in a different way but in game it's it's beautiful and it even it's so good it's almost too good because it's so has such this this feeling of a thing ending and everything is already over from the start of the game that the game itself has an ending <laughs> i can't say more than that but it was too much for me because i'd already had that feeling of ending it was already so perfect it was already i just want to go out on this note there's just this song and you just play the song you're done you don't need to do any more than that and the game itself does a fucking lot more than that uh but i won't say anything more about what it does uh christian peterson says hello ornate game show stars the robot is, in my opinion, the purest Dicey Dungeons class. No other class better captures the risk-reward concept of a game ro- about rolling dice. The first time I got an error, I loudly exclaimed, Oh, I get it. I absolutely love the design of this class. I also hate playing it. <laughs> <laughs> should I spend my six now or roll again and go for that jackpot for double damage? Which dice should I spend before making that last roll? It gives me such terrible anxiety to roll that last dice that I often uh, end up just quitting when I gamble and lose. <laughs> What are some game mechanics that you find to be well-designed but you, for whatever reason, hate engaging with? Kind regards, Christian Peterson. Yeah, it reminded me of something you you had been talking about lately, Tom. Remind me. <laughs> about um, Slay the Spire. Yes, and, uh, yes, I do remember that. And other, other card-based games where, yeah, you get a, a special card that says... You can use this card to pick up two cards, but you've got to dis- you've got to yeah discard one or so this like that. I use this mechanic in Slay the Spire and not thought anything of it except that I don't like it. I it was it's an advantage, but I don't like it. I didn't know why until I played Nowhere Profit, which lets you and this uh, so Nowhere Profit and Steam World Quest actually both do this, where you dealt a hand of cards and once per turn you can just throw one away and get a new one to replace it and it feels really good it's just oh great i get a do-over you get you deal me this thing but there's some randomness control and i was playing out and thinking why doesn't slay the spire have something like this this would be nice for slay the spire it's a game about dealing hand of cards randomness is a big element you want to minimize it and i thought wait it does it has that uh, tools of the trade it's called for the for the uh, silent class um and <laughs> we're just checking that this thing is still recording um tools of the trade means that at the start of your turn you draw one card and discard one card which is technically better than being able to get a do over on one card because it's the same thing where you get one and you lose one but you get the new one before you have to choose which one to lose which means you can take that into account you can see oh actually this new one synergizes with this other thing if you'd asked me before i would have thrown that one away but now that i have this you know, this is one that boosts every defense card I play. This is a defense card. Now I want to keep that defense card and throw away an attack card. <laughs> so it's better. But in Slay the Spire, I don't like it. Because ev- once you activate that power, every turn, before you can do anything, you're given this hand of six cards and you're forced to throw one away. 
Yeah. So it shows you a hand of six cards. And I'm like, awesome. I love this. This is great. All these. Yeah, I want all of them. <laughs> I can't play them all, but I want them all. That's, that's lovely. And it's saying, right now, throw one away. I was like, I don't know. I haven't planned my turn yet. I need to do this. There's a whole mental mass I have to do about what I'm going to do. I can't do it all right now, <laughs> right up front. And you've also shown me this beautiful hand that I can't have, and I've got to throw one away. So the only thing I do is negative. You show me something I can't have, mm. and I have to make a decision. There's no default option. There's no skip this, cancel, or whatever. Whereas if you show me a hand of five cards and then say you can replace any one of them, the default action is don't. I just don't. I keep these five cards. It's fine. Cool. And so it, it's never a pressure and it's never a problem. Um, and I thought that was kind of fascinating. Like the Nowhere Profit one is less of an advantage. It's just worse. But the Slay the Spy one feels worse because it's pressuring you and it's presented as a negative. Yeah, it feels like you're losing and, out. Uh, yeah my, my solution I wrote a blog post about this and my solution was just like deal me the five cards then show me the extra one and say pick which one you want to replace with this or pass and if you pass the new one is discarded so it's still you know you still get the discard and everything um, and there's a default action so you're not pressured to do anything you just say alright you know, whatever I don't, I don't care get on with my turn uh, or if you do replace it it's kind of it's at least a more positive thing of like oh yeah replace this with this great I I know what I got. And then if that bonus card happens to be a really powerful one, you know the power gave you this powerful card. You know you wouldn't have had it if you weren't using tools of the trade. Right now, there's no concept of which card is the extra one. So even if it did save your ass, you don't know it did because you don't know which one it gave you. Yeah. I mean, technically, you could probably say the leftmost one is probably the one it gave you, but the game doesn't highlight that in any way. Or Yeah, this sort of Ascension has the same one called Temple Librarian, like where you, yeah, you, you use this card in your hand to get two cards and you're going to so you get to choose a new card and it's interesting i think that there must be a kind of player who is who is able to to, to roll with the feeling bad <laughs> yeah. who, actually, who actually is a better player for yeah. that because they just go oh temporal librarian yes as opposed to me who goes ah oh, fucking yeah. fuck off <laughs> stop bothering me stop making me feel bad yeah that's it it's pressure and it's like oh gotta make a fucking decision it yeah. might be the wrong one and for me i think it's often mechanics where uh you uh Someone would explain to me, we're playing a multiplayer game together. The latest example was auto chess, like right. uh, that genre of game that's emerged. And someone would explain to me, you know, if you want to get really good at the game, you need to master this skill. And so like in auto chess or, or Dota's, uh, Dota's variant or League of Legends variant, um, it's a really big, like, big deal that you look at what other players have and you understand like A, what they're going for and uh, like what characters they're interested in and B, what that means about the distribution of the characters still in the pool. And at the beginning, you have eight opponents. So people like the pro players are like checking eight boards and figuring out. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's really fascinating. And playing, <laughs> playing probabilities. Yeah, that's great. No, no way in hell I'm doing that ever. Yeah. Could spend a hundred years with this game, never doing it. But uh, you know, you have your fun. Sounds really good. And uh, I'll see you afterwards. By all means, look at what I have. <laughs> yeah, please. Go I don't have that kind of time in my life. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. yeah. I was thinking that it's like, like not not such sort of. Um, uh, kind of cardy kind of probability things there is the design the kind of risk reward design in action games especially around parrying and that kind of thing mm. which obviously there's a skill component to it which you can kind of feel confident in yourself with or not but like uh, I know <laughs> I know this is good design I can see the risk and I can see the reward <laughs> I believe these are two very important things in games 
I'm sure it's all very good and I'm going to run away from it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to do bad play to avoid having to do it. I mean, I've got to say that I feel the game designer has failed you in all these cases and (laughs) and and yeah, I mean, eventually, like, you know, the uh, I didn't personally have this problem with the robot, but I I feel like that's a flaw in the class and the Slayer's Bar thing. I straight up think as a flaw, and I did a blog post about how to fix it. And uh, the the auto battler thing is harder because those games and Dota are designed to have infinite skill ceilings. You know? exactly. It's supposed to be yeah. like the more you can put into this, the more you get out of it. And so that's what they're trying to support there. Uh, they're trying to take every moment of your existence. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, ideally, as a game designer, you want you don't want people like. If somebody says, oh, I recognize this is a good game design, but I hate it, that's not a good feeling as a game designer. <laughs> like, well, my goal was not to have you impressed by me. My goal was to have you actually like the game. <laughs> so basically what we're saying is that like these are the formal things that we feel we should like about games, but like they're actually shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess like weapon durability in Zelda would be a thing where it occupies that same unhappy space where I see why it's there, but it endlessly pisses me off. And actually, a lot of people feel this way yeah, to the point do. that I think yeah. it's probably just a mistake. Like, I know some people do like it, and I know their reasons for liking it, and I see their point. It's true. These are upsides, but I think the downsides are just too big <laughs> for too many people. Uh, we have one last question that's sort of a, more of a story. <laughs> there is a question at the end of it, but we don't really have answers to it, <laughs> but I like this story. Uh, this comes from Ryan. He writes, Dear Crate and Crowbar, recently I tried to give... I decided to give Skyrim another shot on PC, uh, trying to mod it into a game I actually wanted to play again. Survival-focused mods like Frostfall, tougher and more varied enemies, etc. I took a page from Tom F's approach, ignoring the parts of the game I didn't want to engage with, not using the map, turning off the compass, and disabling fast travel. The end result of all these tweaks is an obtuse and unpleasant experience. (laughs) End letter. (laughs) I am constantly lost in the snow or having to go far out of my way to avoid freezing water, and there are overpowered enemies all over the place. Yet this produced a far more compelling story than any quest in the game. I found myself hiding in an otherwise useless cave to stay warm and to avoid a stalking saber cat. I went straight into a bandit camp, not because I wanted to kill them, but because it was my only chance to escape the two packs of wolves on my tail. I combed through the ruined fort looking for food to stave off hunger, not loot to sell. Between the blizzard and the wolves, it took all of my resources just to reach the town of Dawnstar alive. The vanilla game had never evoked a sense of safety that I felt when I arrived at the inn. The fire pit had never looked so warm before. The world never felt like a real place that I could just steamroll, oh, sorry, when I could just steamroll every enemy and wander around at my leisure. At the same time, getting over it with Bennett Foddy has me thinking about how adversity and frustration, not just challenge, can produce a sense of heft and substance. Foddy's mountain is just a nonsensical pile of reused assets, yet the Herculean task of ever reaching the top makes it real. So finally, my question, what games have you experienced that are richer for the ways in which they inflict pain, inconvenience, or confusion on their players? Dark Souls comes to mind, of course. More importantly, what games suffer from in, from offering too much player convenience or too comfortable of an experience? Cheers, Ryan. Actually, now that I think about it, um, Monument Valley ended up just kind of passing me by because it was so slick. It was a puzzle game where everything is so intuitive. It's just, it's the sort of, it's the thing a lot of puzzle designers are aiming for, but maybe when you get it is a bit of a poison chalice because it's just, I just... At every stage, I just did what I was prompted to do. And it was I, was, I wasn't being told what to do. It was subtle. It, I didn't feel like I was. it was a Simon Says thing. 
it was just in every situation, it was so intuitive, so obvious what I should do that it never felt like I was solving a puzzle. And it was beautiful and it was a lovely aesthetic experience. But at the end of it, I thought, wow, that just was over. <laughs> I just did everything immediately. Yeah. And I, not everyone's had that experience. Like, like, it's not necessarily known as, you know, a completely trivial game. For some people, it's not necessarily intuitive. But when you when you try to make a puzzle intuitive, you know, you kind of want the player to, to think in the right direction and not be misguided. And they almost did it too well for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I felt that as well. I just sort of, it felt inconsequential. It's just a lot of pretty images. Whereas, like, Journey is also really slick, and I never felt confused or frustrated, but I did feel like I was solving things. I felt like I was... Mm. I wouldn't describe that as a game that had adversity in it or pain or anything, but it felt satisfying. Well, I think you've got control. You've got sort of, you know, some mastery of control and a sense of movement and kind of being there that you don't get a monument. Modern value is literally just like a little walking along a straight line yeah there's a pleasure in just going from a to b in journey and yeah. and so you, if a puzzle involves going crisscrossing between you know, multiple things you're sort of having a good time even yeah. if you're not puzzled about what to do and it'll change the rules about how you move around now and then and, and yeah while, while throwing fucking amazing shit at your eyes. <laughs> yeah i think the only problem with this kind of discussion that, that's been had so many times is that our notion of like what difficulty is is extremely one-dimensional. Mm. And actually, you you had a great video that you made about this recently, Tom, where you just concluded that difficulty is just arbitrary. Like it's, <laughs> it's arbitrary and highly variable. Um, and I, I actually played Hollow Knight for the first time this year, mm. um, which is heavily inspired by Dark Souls, I think, um, and other other games like my Metroidvanias. Um, and I ended up not finishing it because the difficult parts that I enjoyed were entering a new part of the world and not understanding what it was. It felt really like exploring an alien landscape. Mm-hmm. And the final boss is just, it's just difficult. Like I looked at it and I was like, this is really hard, but there's nothing behind it. There's the, I'm not going to see anything mm. new. The, 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 the texture of the difficulty that I was facing was, was not interesting anymore. And it's interesting that, you know, actually in, in those examples that were given, like finding safe spaces, being chased by wolves, um, these are all like different kinds of difficulty. They're different challenges, different emotions that were being experienced. And, I think often we think too straightforwardly about what it means to challenge a player. Um, hmm. I don't think I'll ever finish Hollow Knight. I don't think I need to. I think I got what I need out of it. I, yeah, yeah. I do that continue of games, you know, kind of why smash your head up against a thing that will, you know will actually, there's nothing after. Right, right. Yeah. Final Fantasy Seven. never finished it. <laughs> got to the end. That's all the questions we have time for this week. Uh, before I forget, we should thank our Patreon backers uh, who make this podcast possible. You can back us on Patreon, patreon.com slash crowbar. We also have a YouTube account where we put up videos of this podcast, but it's just like a static image, and then you just hear the podcast as you watch the static image. Perhaps that you're sounds listening appealing. to it on there right now. <laughs> yeah, then you don't need this. But, uh, <laughs> but those, those cool people who are doing that know that it's at youtube.com slash crowbar. We're at Crate and Crowbar on everything, including Twitter. That's that's our name there, Crate and Crowbar. <laughs> Instagram, you, uh, Instagram. You can send us questions at questions at crateandcrowbar.com. Uh, wait, is that the yeah, address? Yeah, mm, yeah I think Because I just right. look into Gmail to check it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is. Okay, great. <laughs> Do you know what? I guess I've, heard, I've heard Chris say this so many times. Well, have I? Has he ever said that? <laughs> He's undervalued. Have we gone off plate? Sure <laughs> there's a, there's a degree the of boilerplate. <laughs> if you haven't done it in six months, then it's not doesn't roll off the tongue. <laughs> it's it's questions at creatingrobot.com, surely. Oh, right? he sure does it, it though, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, 
that's, that's all the boilerplate stuff. Uh, oh, wait, no, we're, we're people on Twitter individually. We're people. We are people. Don't forget that. Uh, Alex, where are you on Twitter? I'm on rotational at Twitter. <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> it's the literal opposite. Mike. I'm at MTRC. At Mike's is nice and easy to, to say and to remember. At twitter.com. That's not how that works. That's an email address. Don't email that. Fucking <laughs> Twitter will get it. Who knows what they'll do it. And Tom is pentadact at Twitter. <laughs> no. <laughs> It's anarchy without Chris. He's not here to, to lay down the law. Well, I think we should wish everybody a very sincere. Is that really something you can wish? Oh, boy. We wish you a thanks. 